everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Kiko Lurero, who plays lead guitar for fucking Megadeth. You already know who he is, so he doesn't need a long intro, but just in case you've been living under a rock, this guy's one of the most accomplished lead guitar players in the world. He plays guitar for Angra, has a great solo career, incredible instructional stuff, and uh, did I say he's in Megadeth? I introduce you, Kiko Lurero. Kiko Lurero, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you very much for having me here. Perfect pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you for the intense coaching. (laughs) Perfect, man. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. I'm uh, in a hotel because the internet at my house has been down for about a week and I need to do work. So I'm just in a hotel and it's kind of interesting because first time I've been in a hotel since February. So I kind (laughs) of feel like I'm on a trip. Yeah, that's good. Good feeling. Yeah. Everybody wants to have that feeling, I I guess, right? Like a touring feeling, you know, traveling. A little bit. I I have to say that at the end of, I guess, last year, beginning of this year, I was very sick of traveling. So I wanted a break. I was really needing it. And then now I've had this break. And so I came to this hotel, like I said, first time since March, and it feels awesome. It feels great. It feels, and I'm like a mile from my house. So it's, uh, it's not exactly the same, but just the feeling of being in a different environment is nice. So it's like your office. So you go home and then go to work. No, I'm, I've been sleeping here. Why not? Ah, all right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's like a mini vacation. I mean, you got stuck in Finland for a long time, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so we did a uh, Megadeth tour in Europe in uh, January, February, right? It finished in, uh, I don't know, like 20-something, February 25th. And um, so the plan, so my wife and my kids are from Finland. So oh, okay. um, so our, our, we were already discussing about, you know, like uh, uh, spending the year uh, 2020 in Finland because there would be a lot of touring and the album recording. So I will be a lot on tour. So it would be maybe like four months on tour and plus the recording uh, in Nashville. So we we were already kind of a planning to stay in Finland. I mean, the the the, the family stay in Finland while I would be uh, traveling. So the the base would be Finland. So 2020 decided for you. Exactly. Yeah. So so when when we finished the tour, I went to Finland to stay with my family for the plan would be 15 days. Then we had a, a festival in Mexico called Corona Festival, like the Corona beer, <laughs> fe- the Hell and Heaven uh, <laughs> Festival. And uh, that was canceled, of course, because it was March 15th, you know. Yeah, so then I stayed there and then I had to rearrange the, the whole, you know, situation, the whole life in a way uh, for me because... Uh, was not, they, you know, uh, we had a place to stay because it was the plan anyways for the family and the kids, you know, the, with the, in their uh, grandparents' house and stuff like that. But then we rearranged life and then, yeah, <laughs> so had to find like a, a room for my stuff, my guitars and, you know, do my stuff. Yeah, so now, you know, Finland is the, is the way. <laughs> is the, but I, I love it there because it's, it's, it's pretty safe in this, uh, during this pandemic. Uh, situation and um, it's great for the kids the, the the school system the whole thing there is great so and it's summertime so it's amazing how long did it take 
from the moment you knew that you were stuck there until you had your room set up and you could work normally and basically lead your life again? It took some time, I guess, maybe a month or something like that. But I was not in a hurry because uh, I, I, you know, I came from the tour, you know, so I, I wanted to spend you time. A break anyways, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to spend time with the kids and, uh, uh, you know, I have three kids. So I have a, a daughter, eight years old and a twins. Uh, four years old twins, a, a couple, and then I wanted to spend time with them. Was like uh, you know, uh, doing stuff, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and um, yeah. It, so because I, I'm not from there, I don't understand the language. So it takes you know longer, you know, to you know find a place and uh, you know talk to people and uh, understand how things works in the different country. Yeah. You know, that's always like imagine. a learning curve every time you you go to another country. You know. But there's always, you know, you have to get your visa because, you know, those those things, you know, because you're not staying as, as a tourist anymore because the idea would be to be there like for 15 days and suddenly I have to stay there longer. So I have to, you know, go to the police, you know, like immigration police and, you know, solve all those life things, you know, to stay in a different country. And then uh, it took some time, you know, but um, at some point, at some, in as well, staying with the kids and spending some time with the family. I, for me, it was it was was good, you know. For me, um, besides the the horrible thing of the pandemic, but uh, for the family, it was good to, you know, stop the craziness of touring, you know, and uh, spending time and uh, with the family. Yeah. What's the longest uh, since I guess since you started touring heavily? What's the longest amount of time you've had with them in one stretch? I think that's the, the longest time. Well, yeah. besides this, besides yeah. this. Ah, well, then I don't know. You know, no, I have some times like staying like two or three months. But still, that's only two or three months. Yeah, there's always like a, sometimes like a one-off kind of thing that you know. The problem is not the one-offs kind of weekend gig or something, you know, or, or like a small clinic, three, four clinic tour a week. This is okay. The problem is like the six weeks uh, touring, you know, plus traveling. And uh, yeah, that's, that's brutal. So this is the first time that you've really had like a, a normal person's amount of time to be with the family. Yes, yes, yes. Like very, and then makes you uh, think a lot about that. So I don't have kids, but I've often thought about what it would be like to have a more normal life, like a... Uh, I guess a non-entrepreneur, non-music person life where it's just like you're at home and uh, you have certain hours at a job and like it doesn't involve getting up and leaving all the time. I've, I, like, I'm halfway envious of that kind of life. Then at the same time, I love what I do, but there's a, I feel like everything good in the world, there's a price you have to pay for it. And, uh, the price for doing something cool like being in an awesome band or entrepreneur in a company that travels all the time or whatever is that makes normal life a lot harder it just it just does i don't know how it couldn't well yeah yeah <laughs> what can i say i think i think you, you you find your balance you know because when you come back home you're like you're 100 percent there you know that's why i told you when i came from the from the from the tour I was not right away, okay, let me find a place, but I have to practice guitar. I need to, you know, I was not right away 
trying to work more. So I think you'll find a balance if you're touring, if you're out and you have kids, when you go home, you're 100% there. Now it's all about the kids and now about the family life. And then at some point, somebody calls you and then you go again, <laughs> you know, hunting, you know, and then you go out, go hunting, go, you know, uh, go out and uh, to work and then come back home and stay home. You know, I think that's the trick. The tricky part is like when you go back home, if you keep the same pace, because yes, when you're like touring and traveling every day, you're in a different, you're in a bubble, right? Like airplanes and buses and uh, uh, dressing rooms and uh, and people doing stuff for you. You don't, you know, you don't have any, you don't have to take care of your clothes or. And also, you have to be in a certain mode mentally to be able to perform like that i think exactly so have a lot of people working around you so you don't need to go to the supermarket you don't need to you know if you need something you know uh if you need whatever you know like a pair of socks or shampoo somebody goes there and, and brings to you you know on the same day right so and then you get used to that life you know <laughs> and then when you go home i was like oh I have to go to the supermarket. Oh, where's the food? The, the, where's the catering? You know, I oh, I have to cook. Or I have to, you know, I have to go out and buy food or I have to, whatever. I have to buy a pair of socks myself, you know. So, so it changes the pace and then, uh, which is nice, you know, and then having the family. So I think it's, I like that lifestyle, of course. It kind of, a, you know, it's kind of a truck driver lifestyle, I guess, you know, like you keep moving. And there's a like, there's a, there's a beautiful side of that because you're every day in a different country. You can learn a lot of stuff. You can meet different people, different culture. And then there's no better way to learn about life uh, than seeing different countries and cultures and different perspective of life uh, from, from, yeah, from different people, you know, and traveling. So I always take, I try to take a lot of advantage of uh, when I travel to learn from the place I, uh, I'm there, you know, I am, you know. I think you get a perspective that's very different than if you just go as a tourist, because as a tourist, oftentimes you don't go to like the parts of town where people actually live and work, and you don't really normally meet lots of the people who have normal lives there you'll stay at a hotel or a resort or whatever. Yeah, you see the, the beauty. You see the beautiful, the beauty, yes. You don't see real life. Not that real life isn't beautiful, but it's complex. There's a lot more to it than just some old building from 1600 that's beautiful. It's, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, so when you're touring, so also, but you can be touring and be inside the bubble and you don't see anything, you know? You yeah. can be like inside of, you know, to the hotel, like international hotel that, you know, like Hilton Hotel or like whatever, you know, like that you have the same breakfast every morning, you know, talk, mm -hmm. you know, to the same. So it, they look all the same, the rooms. And then you go with, inside a van that looks like a van. And then you go to the dressing room that you have <laughs> your stuff there, your cases with your stuff. So you can be in different countries and feel like you're in, at home. And then uh, the bigger the band is, the more at home feeling uh, the crew is going to uh, set for you, right? Prepare for you. So you have the same food, you have the same thing. So, which is very important as well. So every day you have kind of the same thing. So you feel like you have a normal life because you don't want to be like every day 
trying whatever a different brand of butter you know what what you know what i mean like trying to discover oh, what is this what can i eat this or you know so every day you kind of eat the same things and uh if you know what i mean i mean like i think only the the ones that really tour a lot will understand what i'm talking about because it is yes. very important because every time you go to a different hotel you have to figure out how do i turn on this light you know, this fancy hotel that they have like a, you know, like a, <laughs> you know, a different, uh, you know, a modern one is like super modern. So I have to figure out, you know, those boutique hotels that you don't know how to, where to, <laughs> where, you know, so like there's always a learning curve every time you, you go to a new room. And then after a while, you know, when you're like in the, you know, 20 different hotels in a tour. It's like, come on, give me the same room because I need the same thing, you know, the same bed, the same toilet, you know. Well, you know what I think What I think it is, man, is that those little things, once, are no big deal, but humans need routines. Exactly. They need habits oh, in yeah. order to feel sane and to be able to think about, I guess, more important things. Yeah. If you're using your mental energy every single day to adapt to a whole new routine, whole new everything that takes up a lot more energy over time than I think people realize. And that gets exhausting. Oh, totally. Because touring is not like a vacation that you stay like five days in a place or 10 days in a place. It's like every day in a different place. It's like every day, you know, so every day in a different city, maybe two days in a different city. Uh, so that's hard. But at the same, same time, you have this new city that you can take a walk or can you know run or discover something you know can run around the venue and then you discover just a, a normal neighborhood and see how people live i think that's pretty cool you know and then if you have the time you can go to the you know to the tourist uh, touristic places you know of course you have a day off in milan or, or have a uh, some time on a show day is very hard to go visit uh, touristic places but if you have a day off in a nice city you can always explore the city, and this is very important, not to be in the bubbles, stay in the hotel. Um, so you can really, uh, you know, uh, get to know countries and different cities. And if you have, after many tours, you start having friends on those cities, you know, on those countries. And then, yes, you come and meet different friends that you see every other year, you know, which is cool too. At the same time, you know, sometimes I, I remember going to Brazil and meeting some, some guys from, uh, you know, from my, my school, you know, school times. And then I said, like, man, the guys, they, they still live in the same neighborhood. They have their job and still in the same neighborhood. Their, their kids are going to the same school that we used to go. So, like, for me, this is surreal, you know. How can you live, like, 40 years in the same neighborhood and then maybe sometimes going on vacation to Paris or, you know, like it's, this sound, it sounds to me so boring. You know, but I know the their, their is, life can happy? be excited. Are well, they happy though? Yeah, probably, probably, you know, but it sounds, I say like, wow, in, in those, uh, let's say like almost 30 years of touring, of course, in the beginning of my career, I was not touring a lot, but let's say like 20 years of touring, I've been in so many places and I got to know so many things and then it gives you uh, such a perspective of life. Uh, and you cannot read in, in, in any book, you know. You can, how can, or like movies or something, you know, just 
see things, you know, going to Japan, to China, to Indonesia, to to Russia, to, you know, like Canada, you know, like Argentina, you know, to really feel the country and the people and then what what they're like, you know. So, yeah. I'm just wondering about, is it in your character or is was it something when you were younger that you knew that if you stayed in your hometown or in the same place that it would kind of make you miserable? Like, is it is this something you wanted to be able to do this forever and see the world? Because I wonder, mm-hmm. man, with those types who stayed home, uh, do they even want, like, really, really want, like, for instance, what you do? Aren't, aren't most of them just cool with what they've got? Well, but, you know, I, I, I was never thinking about that when I was a teenager, you know, because my family didn't have the means to to go, you know, to other country to visit or any fancy uh, trips, you know. So, no, I, I just started doing, you know, my first time going abroad was to record my first album, the first album from Angra in uh, 1993, right? So we went to Germany. So my first time uh, spending three months in Germany, and it was a big, it was a big shock, you know, <laughs> like just a little different. <laughs> yeah, in Hamburg, and uh, and of course uh, coming from Brazil, expecting okay, I'm going to Europe, things are gonna be super fancy, and you know, have this image <laughs> of uh, you know, and then suddenly we were like in this like tiny, uh, uh, t- it was not even a hotel, like or a, a Zimmer, like a like or like a, some rooms, you know, some pension or some kind of a yeah they call the zimmer house whatever you know a few rooms you know old ladies house was renting some rooms it's kind mm-hmm. of tiny hotel kind of thing uh almost like an airbnb right back in the day right kind of thing and uh and then the studio was inside a bunker you know like a like this <laughs> this concrete block uh, and then it was like horrible you know Horrible. Of course, the studio had a, like great equipment, but <laughs> it was like ugly as fuck, you know. Like in Hamburg, and <laughs> it's like I was expecting like fancy studios, you know, with the lounges and stuff. <laughs> so that was my experience, yeah. and uh, in Hamburg, in Germany. But uh, it was be- beautiful city, by the way. But uh, it was my first time. But after that, you know, uh, and then I started going to Japan and visiting Europe and um, South America. And then I started discovering how cool it was to to travel and to do what you love, which is playing guitar, you know, and meeting uh, people that loves music, that loves the same kind of music that you love, and then uh, not even it, to bigger tours or even small cl- clinic tours that you just go to a hotel, play inside the store, you know, have a dinner with cool people, and then go back home, you know, like which is I love doing guitar clinics because you get even more intimate intimate with the, the local people you know you go to a, like a cool restaurant and then it's only you so you can ask oh take me to something different you know something local and then uh, because when you're with a band it has to be like or the cheaper uh, uh, possibility you know like <laughs> some pizzas you know or you have to accommodate a lot of people so it's different but when you're doing guitar clinics the guy can do an extra drive and drive around some cool places. Normally, people are proud to show their countries or proud to show the city. So, guitar clinics, you have more time to to discover 
places and people. So I love doing guitar clinics because of that. And then you go to a store or go to a small theater and then play guitar for two hours. That's the best thing you can do in life. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get paid for that. Just out of curiosity, so how long can you go without playing? Like before you start to feel like I need to do this? Like if if you're taking a break, does that mean like a hundred percent break? Like not picking up the guitar? Or is it like 30 minutes just to not like lose anything or something like that? I can be without playing guitar for a longer time, the guitar, but not music, which is different, you know? I mean like electric guitar playing my stuff, you know, my music or the style of music that I play that you, you guys know. Visa can be away forever, you know? But getting like an acoustic guitar, nylon guitar, and just sitting at home and playing like something, this I need that like in a daily basis. So no matter what, you're still doing something with a guitar. Yeah, but it's not work-related. So I think it's very different. It's not work-related, but it keeps your hands active. But it's not about technique. So it's more about, uh, it's more of a mental thing? Yes, it's a mental thing. It's like it's a it's a deeper connection with music. So I might get a, a, an acoustic guitar and play an A minor chord, and just play something a melody over that, and that makes me feel good, you know. And that's it, you know. And uh, but in the case now in March, you know, the, during the pandemic, was a little bit different because I had my album, you know, I was doing like the in the final parts of my, you know, the final steps of the album so actually i was working in a way because noli was uh, sending me the mixes so i had to listen to the mixes and approve the mixes or giving comments to the mixes and then also the the cover art of the album i released the album in uh, uh, the early july open source and then i was doing the process of uh, the cover art uh, you know so there's some people working for the in in the you know artwork, the mixing or the mastering, those final steps of the of the product, and uh, so I was not working, but I was receiving those uh, materials to approve, right? And um, yeah, so uh, in a way I was working. So I, I was not in a mood of oh I want to compose more things because I just finished an album, and uh, you know so I was about. I need to put this thing out, you know, when, and then now the pandemic. So I was trying not to stress about it, um, but uh, that's why I was not into, and then I just came from the tour. So I was like playing every day almost. So, you know, so I need to to find this balance. And then I think after the tour, I, I need some break from the guitar in a way, like the the professional side of playing guitar, if you know what I mean. Uh, I've been playing for a long time, and uh, I, I think you need to have this mental space sometimes. But it doesn't mean that you don't play. Or, you know, I have a piano at home, so I might play some piano stuff. You know, I might uh, play with my kids or some funny, you know, create some funny songs or, you know, stupid stuff, you know, kids stuff, you know. So somehow music's always happening. Oh, yes, yeah, that's that's a, in some that's way, mandatory. shape, or form. Yeah, because that's part of your life. That's no way. That's no way to avoid that. But you have to disconnect with the, I need to perform. This, I need to perform, is 
that you have to stop you know because you do a tour during the tour it's like i need to perform i need to perform better i need to fix this solo that i'm always you know struggling this part or, or whatever you know i have to see my uh my stage performance i have to uh, so you're always trying to improve your performance in different ways, right, on tour. And then if you're composing and you're working on an album, you want it to, you know, it's like also it's about the performing, uh, the performance, right? Um, so when you go back home and you want to just relax, the music is there, but you're not trying to perform. You're not, not trying to, I need to compose a, a better song or I need to play faster or I need to fix this technique because I'm struggling here or there, you know. It's just for the love of it. Exactly. Because it's, it's, a, it's part of my life. There's no way to, to get out of that. So say you're on tour in performance mode and there is some solo in some song that you feel is there's some spot that's always fucking you up for whatever reason or it's just not as good as it, as you think it could be. What's your process for improving it? Like, do you, I, the reason I'm wondering is because some people I know will say that they'll, they'll visualize it and then use the time on stage to get, to actually play it after visualizing it or, or they'll sit there for three hours before the show and work on it. What, what do you do? Yeah, I think, I'll, so we have the vis, uh, visualization is a good thing too, you know, um, you have to do it. It's part of the process. I think playing, I know it's a common thing, but people don't do it, which is playing very slowly, uh, the part. And first of all, we have to understand what's going on. So let's say it's a solo, and part of that solo, every time you play on stage, you something happens and you play the wrong note or it's not clean enough or something, right? So if you want to perform on stage and you're walking or running, you're doing like all the body movements, you know, in a, from a, uh, during a show, uh, you re you have to know how to play that solo uh, really really well because the, you you know you're gonna be walking during at least you're gonna be walking during that solo. I mean that's my kind of performance. Maybe you can just stay you know stand still and look to the guitar and and and, and performs like you would be in your bedroom. But I don't think that's a show. You know a concert is different, so you have to perform. So at least you're going to be walking or your guitar is going to be moving. That, I mean, even walking is very different than just standing there or sitting there. Yeah. So you have the sitting position that, you know, playing in your bedroom, you're sitting and then you're practicing. Once you stand up, it's already a different environment. Just the fact you're standing up. So a lot of guitar players, they have a problem to play the same thing, and including me, playing the same thing when standing up, mm -hmm. right? And then you have to play the same thing walking, right? And then you have to play the same thing walking and having um, a lot of distractions around you, right? So you have the audience, you have somebody from the audience that's doing some hand signs to you or have, have a, has a cool t-shirt that you just look and <laughs> and then or maybe uh, some technical problems you have to talk to the, to the monitor guy that you're not quite listening to the whatever the click track or the bass drum or something and then you have to be playing at the same time 
right? So you have to communicate with the, with the audience, you have to communicate with the crew, you have to communicate with the band, right? While playing that difficult part, right? So, uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a longer process. So first you practice. So the practicing moment is practicing, it's not playing. So I think the, the, one of the mistakes, I would say, is people just play, they don't practice. You know, they sit down and play, play with the backing track, have fun, which is the best part, but they don't practice, right? And then after you practice first, then you play, then you perform. Because the performance, what I call the performance, is the playing with all those distractions, you know? And then with the body movement and walking or running or, you know, because like in Megadeth, you might be like, okay, uh, I have my spots, so I, I will do the solos, right? So if I'm playing the rhythm, tr uh, rhythm part, the verse, I have my spot on stage, my, you know. But then solo time, I maybe go to stage right, you know, and then the first solo is stage right, but the second solo is stage left. Now the, the third solo of the song is like by Dave or by Alephson. You know, I know all the places I have to be during the parts of the song. So this is, has to be, everything has to be very automatic. You cannot think anymore during a show. It has to be very automatic. And to get to that level, you have to start first practicing because all the alternate picking, sweep picking, uh, whatever, this has to be so automated that you have you cannot think. If you think, it's gonna be you you're gonna fuck up at some point, you know? So that's why you have to practice first. And practicing is have to play very slowly. You have to isolate the technique. So let's say you you're struggling to play a fast run, alternate picking uh, fast run. Okay, first right hand. Are you able to play only with the uh, right hand half of the speed? Alright, so what about the left hand? Good. Can you create exercises for that specific kind of a phrasing? And then you create a specific exercise for that. Can you play that, build the speed to the level of the song? Can you play faster than it's necessary for the song, which is very important? How much faster do you do you test it with? Well, it depends on the, on the level, you know, how fast is the song. Sometimes it's, it's already in the limit, but you have to be, you know, you have to be, you have to play a little bit faster. You're basically giving yourself headroom. Yeah, the headroom, exactly. And also, can you play that phrase uh, a longer time? Because when you practice, there's one thing is playing fast or playing for a certain speed for a longer time. So let's say like a marathon runner or, or, or like a hundred meters runner. Right. So one thing is like one phrase super fast. The other thing is like how fast can you play for five minutes the same exercise without stopping? That's going to be a totally different speed. Right. So you have to practice both ways. You have to practice. Let's say you have just a scale up and down, alternate picking, three notes per string, like basic stuff. Let's say you play, you know, 100 BPM, you know, for five minutes. But if you play just one bar, you might play this for 130 BPM. Because that's one thing is endurance, the other thing is speed. And you have to practice both. And you practice only right hand, you practice only uh, left hand, you practice um, 
coming from one phrase to another phrase, just the, the transition. Most of the time, you, the problem is in the transitions of the phrases, you know, um, how, or like the first note of the solo, you know, because in, on a concert, uh, probably you'll be walking, you know, because you, you're like playing the rhythm track and now it's your time to write your, your highlight, right? So you're going to the front of the stage because it's your time to do the solo or you're going uh, center stage to, you know, and then you have to walk there. So, but if you walk, uh, you cannot walk before the solo and be there because in my case, you're going to have the singer or Dave Mustaine is going to be there on the microphone. So I have to wait for him to get out of his place so I can go, right? So this timing is very important. So there's all, you have to know your timing because you cannot be late, but you cannot be uh, before the solo starts because Dave is going to be there and you, and you might hit his guitar or something like awkward might happen. Yeah, you don't so want to do that. So the timing is very important. So he's going to walk out and I, I'm, I will be there, center stage, and then I start the solo. So the first note of the solo, it might be a, a, a challenging thing, even if it's an easy solo. Are there easy solos in Megadeth? Yeah, it can be all like a melody or something, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, or may, uh, maybe the solo starts... Even like Symphony of Destruction, it starts with the song Zini and it starts with the E note, you know, <laughs> just like one note. And how you hit that note with intention, with a good uh, image on stage and then right, and walking. And then Symphony of Destruction, I played that verse before the solo. I'm stage right. So I have to walk before, during the, during the verse, I cr you know, Alefson comes to, other, to my side and I go to his side. And then I'm playing the verse, uh, right stage. And then I walk to the front of the stage when the solo starts. So I have to be, I mean, it's easy to do it, but you see, it's not about the picking pattern or whatever. It's more about the timing for the walking. And then you have the lights, because if you're not following the lights, you're gonna be in the dark. So, and you don't wanna be in the dark because not because you wanna shine, but because that's part of the show. No one's gonna see you. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and there you're playing, right? And then, uh, well, let's talk about Symphony of Destruction because you know people, most of the people know that song. And then the solo starts; it's easy. But then later on, you have like a more uh, complicated phrases. Yeah, so you have to have this mindset that okay, this uh, and then is a solo that you cannot fuck up, right? <laughs> kind of everybody knows the solo. So uh, yeah. there's another thing too, and how and then you don't want to go in front of the stage and stay like you're playing in your bedroom, right? So so there's a lot of things to think, and it's not about the picking pattern or you know this is a sounds like that part should be assumed exactly. So that's yeah. why that's the practicing. And the practicing is like, okay, uh, like a symphony. Is, uh, well, symphony has a is, that's a difficult part. That's one of it's good that I mentioned because I'm just thinking now. There's a like an arpeggio sequence there, which is uh, it go it, you know like in two strings, like in the first and the second strings, those uh, mm -hmm. triads, and then you you know it, it shifts you know the position pretty fast, and then you're like walking or moving your body there, so. And uh, you, you, you want to look like <laughs> you, you, uh, like a rock star there, you know? and then uh, it's not easy, you know. So that you have, I have to practice that specific arpeggio. It's pretty easy to play that thing if you're sitting down, you know. It's just like a triad, 
try their pages, you know, E minor, try their pages. But when you're on stage, sometimes you miss the first, like, uh, 24 frets E note there. You miss that because it's a big jump. So what I do, that's what I call practicing. I just train going to that note, just the, that note. Just like focus on getting that note right. Because I know if I get that note right, then it's okay. I remember reading an interview and, you know, total different style of guitar playing, but I think just as relevant. Uh, I believe that I was reading an interview with a guitar tech from U2. And he said that there was this one part at the beginning of one of their hits that the edge is playing one of those one of those delay parts that he did. And the picking, something about the way it started, he would always fuck it up. And so he would go to the front of the stage before sound check and just play that one part for three hours straight. But standing up on stage exactly where he's going to be for the show and moving in all the directions he was going to move, just that same part, over and over and over, standing up, doing it for real before the sound check could begin because he felt like that's the only way that he could actually learn to do it properly for the show because obviously he could do it sitting down but that's that wasn't the issue the issue was doing it on stage yeah well, well it makes to totally sense i don't know about the three hours repeating the same thing but <laughs> but uh whatever it takes though yeah but yes some parts that's important yeah some parts i i, I would do the same thing if i know i'm uh, some parts are i'm playing wrong i would do on stage that specific little part not for three hours maybe one or two passages you know uh just to feel okay it's okay because it's totally mentally it's not that you're not able it's a mental game, you know, because if you start playing wrong, that specific part that's even easy, is the easy part, you know you're going to fuck up every show. And then just before that part, it's like, oh, again, it's coming, it's coming, and I will play wrong, I will play wrong, I cannot do like I did yesterday, and then boom, wrong again. And then next day, it's again, you know, so it's a mental game, you know. It's not about uh, being able or not, it's just like, how can you be, that's why the visualization is very good, because you can visualize you playing well, and you can visualize you playing uh, on stage and doing whatever you do on stage, and then coming with a lot of confidence to that part, and then you go there and play well, in, at least mentally, you play right many times, and then when you're sta on stage, you try to go back to that uh, mental state. So. It's meant, uh, the visualization is good to mainly if you're like playing wrong the same part over and over and over and that part is easy because it's not about practicing because you cannot sit down at home and practice like easy part you know it's just like it's a mental thing you know and uh, it doesn't happen to I remember the first show with Megadeth I was afraid of that so nothing happened because Let's say they have a song called uh, Tulemond, right? Which is like, it starts with a clean guitar, super easy, just, you know, clean chords, arpeggios. But it's like, you were alone on stage. Sounds scary. Lights only on you. And then you're in a festival for 50,000 people, you know? And this big stage and the, the camera guy comes close to you. And you know you're going to be in these huge, you know, screens. Uh, uh, and then you just have to play this F sharp minor arpeggio, you know? And once you, if you play wrong once, 
we're gonna be scared about that part every show, you know. And it's and it, there's no way to to practice that because if you, if you sit down in your bedroom and practice, you're gonna play right every time because it's easy. It's easy. It's about the mental state uh, on stage because of all the all the information happening around you. You know, the big stage, the the crowd, and the then adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, the adrenaline is is yeah is is, is another thing. You know, so have to calm down as well, you know, before, uh, or have to understand that, okay, that's an, another level of energy now, because look, you're like backstage, you know, mainly in the big, big, like when you're playing a small band, you know, and I'm talking most of my life, I, I played in small, smaller venues and stuff, and uh, you're already feeling the, the sound of the crowd, you're already there, you're like in this, you know, this mental state that, you're gonna play. Everybody's it's a chaotic. It's a chaotic uh, dressing room most of the time. Uh, so you're there in that mental state. If you're playing a bigger band or in a festival, probably the dressing room is it's a peaceful, quiet place. You're like sitting. It's like a lounge. You're like relaxed, and then nothing's happening. You don't hear the crowd, right? It's like you're in a completely different mental state, you know. And then suddenly, like five minutes later, you're fucking a big stage, lights, and you know, ten thousand people screaming. And then it's, it's a big jump. So we have to understand how you 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 get prepared for that, you know, uh, relaxed uh, relaxed mental state to the to the you know heavy metal, thrash metal, uh, on, uh, uh, rock star on stage, let's say, you know. So uh, with people screaming and, uh, and the lights and the text and the whole thing, you know, you know. So that's, that's the, the anxiety and the adrenaline is very important to understand how your body reacts to that. How does your body react to it? Some people lose accuracy, for instance. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. That's what's going to be the first thing. And then, you, and then you have to acknowledge that you're going to lose totally the accuracy. Maybe that's why you should learn how to play things faster than you need to. Then you need to play faster and then, make, and then basically have to play very slowly. Because the accuracy doesn't come from playing fast. The accuracy comes from playing slowly. So you think that those two methods of training, like the slowly for the muscle memory and fast for the headroom, are two good ways to counter the loss of accuracy due to adrenaline? Yeah. So that's what I, I, I kind of, you know, I have some students and stuff, you know, uh, uh, that, that I, I kind of organize that, that thing because it's basically like the slowly, the slowly part and then uh, isolating the problems, you know, the difficulties, the, the fucked up, you know, parts, you know, isolating that and understanding what is going, what's going on. Most of the guitar players and I, and including myself too, of course, um, sometimes I just play that part that is not really well played, but you just, okay, it's okay. You know, you just keep playing that thing and then you don't care much about it. And then it's part of your playing. And sometimes it's cool because it's part of your playing that kind of, that place that is kind of dirty or something. But uh, you can always improve. So to improve, you have to get only that specific part Maybe it's just a phrase, and then that phrase you're gonna isolate the right hand, the left hand. You're gonna create few exercises for, for that phrase, you know. 
So let's say it's an arpeggio sequence. So you create different arpeggio sequences uh, using the same technique. And then you play very slowly. And then you build endurance, you build speed. And then at some point you try to push the speed. So get out of the, 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 the plateau with a different kind of approach of practicing. So I have different approaches of practice, mainly having kids and stuff and not playing all the time and wanting to have this time for me or for my music that I enjoy music and not only trying to perform all the time. I do have my practice routine very specific and very designed to be effective when I need, you know, because I don't want to be playing uh, uh, guitar exercises every day for eight hours. My life doesn't, I, I can't. It just is not possible having three kids and uh, taking care. And, and not only because I have to do it, because I want to do it. I want to be with the family, too, with the kids. You know, I cannot be like eight hours playing guitar and then they're, <laughs> you know. So you've got to be efficient with your guitar playing practice. You, ha you have to be efficient, too, you know, because I'm st I still, you know, I still play the songs that I recorded when I was. Uh, so if I play the Angra songs when I recorded that I recorded when I was 20 years old. So back then I was playing guitar the whole day. So how can I now, with almost 50 years old, play the same thing? That's the, 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 the problem that the, the musicians, they face compared to sports. Because the guy in sports has, has a, a, a lifespan of, you know. Yeah, he's, he's old by the time he's 30. Exactly. So he can be like his full on 100% when he's 35, he retires, right? And then comes the new generation and then good. Man, the guy can be a manager, can be a coach or something else. He has to change, not, not the musicians. So when you're 35, you're still playing the stuff that you did when you were 20, and then maybe now you're you're now you have the family, you have the stuff. Now you have to to make take it seriously as a profession, and uh, so then you don't have that much time anymore. And then you keep going. Then you suddenly you're 50 years old, and you still have to play the stuff that you used to play when you're 20. And then, but now the 20 years old guy now he's 35, and he's um, in the same business as you. And then you have a new guy coming with 20 years old, and then he's also doing uh, the same business as you, playing the same places. So that's the difference of music. It's kind of accumulating, so, right? Uh, so it gets even more competitive. So you have Rolling Stones, like a good example. You have Rolling Stones doing stadio concerts. Then you have U2 doing stadio concerts. Then you have Coldplay doing stadio concerts. Then you have Muse. Right? And Rolling Stone is still doing the fucking stadium concerts and the competing with Muse. They didn't retire. In, in sports, you, you would have, you know, it would be like Holyfield, whatever, I don't know, I, I, I can talk about soccer. It would be like Pele, like playing with Ronaldo that is playing with Neymar, you know? It's like, uh, you know, it's like I did a clinic with Alan Holtworth, you know, or I did clinics, you know, like playing with, uh, you know, clinics or camps with my heroes, which is a cool thing because suddenly you're playing with Paul Gilbert or, you know, Satriani or Alan Holdsworth, your heroes. And they're still awesome. Still, that's, a, that's a good side. That's a great side because, you, and then, of course, uh, probably there, there will be like a 20 years old kid 
I, call, I can call a kid, right? Uh, 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 that is awesome. That's an awesome player. And then it can play with me. And then we can play together. And then we can play also with, I don't know, another, another guy, you know. Uh, that's a, the good part of music. We can, we can be always playing. And then all these uh, generations, they can play together. But at the same time, you have to have the same technique you used to have when you had time to practice, that's pretty hard, you know. People don't think about it, I guess. So question I have for you about that is because even not on guitar, like now that I do, you know, URM and business stuff, it's still one of the most important things that I've learned how to do in the past few years is how to be more efficient with time and get the most, you know, work on the things that make the most difference so that you do have time for everything else. Cause I don't have 12 hours like I used to, to do something like I remember back in the day if I was writing a song, I could sit there for 36 hours. That shit's not happening now. So what I'm wondering though, is do you think that when you're starting like, or when you're young, like say like 20, and you're trying to get awesome at guitar, that at that point you should do the eight hours a day? Or should you figure out how to do what you're doing now? Like, do you think you can get to the level that you would want to get to by doing the efficient practice at the beginning? Yeah, I understand. Good question. The thing is, imagine that when you were 18, 19, you were already efficient, and then you still had the eight hours. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Right? So... Because when I was young, when, when I, the stuff that I'm talking about is something that I've been doing since I was, you know, uh, 17, 18. I mean, of course, now it's clear to explain to people or if I, you know, I did a course uh, about that. So I have to organize better so people can understand. But uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, very meticulous about how to practice, you know, uh, back in the day for me. Nobody was paying me for that. I just wanted to, to play better. How did you figure that out, that you had to be that way? Did someone explain that to you, or did you just, just made sense? No, because, you know, I come from Brazil, so, I mean, sometimes I see uh, some, uh, some people say, oh, back in the days, we didn't, have, we didn't have videos, we didn't have magazines. So, like, come on. You have, like, at least you had, like, Guitar Player magazine, you have a Young Guitar <laughs> magazine, you have all the albums, you could buy stuff, you have all the songbooks, you had all the stuff, come on. Or, like, the VHS, you could go to a store and buy it. In Brazil, there yes. was nothing, nothing. It was a closed market. So, Brazil was coming from a military dictatorship. So, all the imports were closed. So, we didn't have uh, proper guitar magazines or VHS or anything like that, you know. Uh, just maybe acoustic guitar books or music books. Um, all the guitars and acoustic guitars were from Brazil, manufactured in Brazil. And it was expensive and hard to find. There was not many, you know, options. So, I didn't have uh, many material, you know, to really 
study, you know. So uh, I was like figuring out myself. But I remember in the late 80s, for some reason, a big record label started releasing the Shrapnel records. Like they would license them and release them down there? Yes, yes. And then uh, was the first time, of course, like the big bands, you know, Led Zeppelin and Scorpions. We had the Rock in Rio was a big thing for me, Rock in Rio in 85. I was 13 and I saw that from the TV. You know, we had in Rock in Rio, Iron Maiden, Power Slave, Scorpions, George Benson, we had Queen, uh, White Snakes with John Sykes. Uh, what else? Uh, yes. He's awesome. Yes, with Trevor Rabin, uh, ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne with J.K. Lee. Um, what else? Uh, amazing. Like in in uh, showing the TV, those bands. And I was like, that, that was like a, the big change for me going from acoustic guitar, you know, trying to learn some classical pieces, you know, easy pieces. I was like starting when I was 13 to really wanted to play electric guitar, right? So uh, the rock and reel was very important. And then, uh, uh, you know, listening to big bands that had great guitar players. But I, did, I have no idea what I was a power chord, you know. I had no idea what was pentatonic scales, nothing, because I was like playing uh, simple uh, classical pieces, you know, on the acoustic guitar, right? Uh, so this was a big jump. And then... Uh, then I started having uh, some guitar lessons in the you know local school from the neighborhood. So the guy started you know the first lesson I was uh, was led in the guy teaching me Led Zeppelin, uh, Black Dog riff, and then some licks from mm -hmm. Hendrix or Van Halen. So I had that, but it was like one hour uh, a week, you know, like guitar lesson going to you know private school there, and uh, I had to figure out myself. And later, and then. Uh, Later, I had, you know, like getting the scales, the pentatonics, or the arpeggios from the acoustic guitar, right, for the right hand, like trying to play with the guitar pick, you know. So I'm trying to adapt some things from the acoustic guitar to the electric guitar and uh, seeing some videos. And then, of course, the Shrapnel Records with, you know, uh, Ray Set X and, uh, you know, all the guys, you know, the Tony Mac. Uh, McAlpine or uh, Jason Becker, Mark Friedman, all those albums, but I didn't. I had no idea how to play those things, you know. And then, and then slowly I start getting the videos. You know, somebody had a copy of the video, you know, and then it would go to to a friend's house or something that he had the videos and we watched together, kind of thing, you know. Uh, it was very hard. It was very hard. And I remember also going to the Japanese town in Sao Paulo. And going to the bookstores there, trying to find a young guitar magazine. You know, uh, it was a magazine that had some scores and pictures of the hands uh, of the players, you know. So you found, you found what you could. Yeah, so I had to go to that place, you know, in the Japanese town and going to the bookstore and like trying to find those magazines. And then maybe find one, you know, <laughs> here and there. And then I had to play the songs that I had in the magazine. And then... Possibly bands that I didn't like it, you know, because, but it, that's what I had, you know. So I was organizing, uh, and then I had a great teacher. Of course, the Brazilian music was always, um, uh, Brazilian music is like, the, for me, is the best music for all times. And, you know, like the, the Brazilian music, all the, uh, we, we, I tend to say Bossa Nova, but it's Bossa Nova is just a period in time and a specific uh, style of music. But that harmony, 
complex harmony that comes from the from the classical music with uh, the Brazilian melodies, with the, the the samba and the 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 black music. This mixture that happened only in Brazil, the way it happened in in the United States, that became the jazz or the blues. Uh, we kind of shared the same history background with slavery and the natives, uh, but the, the Brazilian way of uh, integrating those uh, uh, cultures were very different than the United States, very different because of the Catholicism. I don't know if you guys want to know about that, but maybe it's too boring. No, man, that's fascinating. But the main thing was in Brazil... Uh, the Catholic Church kind of embraces the other culture and try to make it their own, while the Protestants just like avoid. So let's say the the slaves in 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 in, in, North, in the North America couldn't play percussion because that's kind of their religion, so they couldn't. So they had to sing, right? That's what you see. And then they had to play the white people instruments like guitars or or brass or piano. So that's why you see blues or jazz having black people play, singing, and then you have this amazing culture of singers and choirs from the gospel, right? Yeah, they're unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And then we don't have in Brazil that. We don't have that. Yeah, and you have the jazz players like playing trumpet or saxophone, and then you have you know all those uh, all those uh, great jazz musicians incorporating the European culture of the classical music with the blues, right? And the singing of the blues and play, people playing guitar, electric guitar, so white white people instrument. Where did the Brazilian percussion element come from? So because percussion is completely connected to religion, so a groove has a connection with the specific god, right? So every groove has a, their own, you know, every god has their own groove, let's say, to, to make it simple, right? So the Catholic Church, because they have uh, the saints, they would connect the god to the saint, and then they would sing to the saint, like St. John or St. George or whatever, you know? Uh, but in the United States, they were not allowed at all to play percussion. Right. Interesting. I, I had never heard about this before. Yeah. Well, so now... <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so in, in Brazil, all, all the Caribbean, they were playing percussion because they could play percussion. And the, the percussion, they were make, make, make... Because percussion, you can make percussion from anything, right? Just put, you know, wood and a skin of an animal and then here we go. You have the percussion, <laughs> you know? Or you can... Anything, right? Uh, so they, the the... The African culture could stay there in Brazil or the Caribbean somehow with the percussion, with the grooves that relates to a god. And then you have several gods. The Protestants, they don't accept having several gods or several saints. There's only one god. So, so how can you have different grooves for different gods? So that's not allowed. So you might as well don't yep. play your percussion. If you see the the only percussion from the the uh, from the black people in, in in the United States is the washboard, which like is not a percussion. But if you see the like the Dixie, you know, having the washboard or playing drums, which is an European thing, you know, right? Like drum, real drums. So in Brazil, yeah. you have the uh, ensemble of uh, percussion. 
the drum the drums thing was like way way after i mean when when people start playing drums it was like more like a more like a circus thing i'm sorry about the drummers but because a percussion ensemble is like several people i think the drummers will agree with me so a percussion ensemble several people playing different different parts so when you try to bring that to a drum kit it's pretty hard because your feet has to do what the you know what the surdo is doing which is like the the floor tom is doing or uh, uh, from the samba school or the hi-hat is doing what the shakers are doing or the snare has to do what the snare guy is doing you know so one guy has to to put all together but it will never sound like 100 people playing percussion that you have in the samba school a group of people 20 people right which is an, is an amazing thing from the Brazilian music. So Brazil has this thing of the keeping the, the, the percussion because of the, you know, the situation that I just described. And you have uh, in the 40s and 50s, um, um, 40s and 50s, you have the people coming from Europe after the war, amazing German teachers and composers. And the same happened in the United States. Right, in Stravinsky and all the all those people going to the United States or going to Brazil, so a lot of guys from the 50s or 40s started having lessons and classes of uh, intricate and sophisticated music with like master composers. Yeah, exactly, or teachers and you know coming from Europe, right, escaping from the war or for 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 the, the after the war uh, moment. So that's why you have Tom Jobim, the guy from a uh, girl from Ipanema having like a, a deep knowledge of music, right? And, uh, and then many other ones like Villa Lobos and other guys having a deep knowledge of arrangement and composing techniques from, the, from Europe and then mixing those things with the Afro-Brazilian culture with the percussion and the rhythms and all that. And suddenly you have the Brazilian music. Which, which is a, it's a unique thing. The combination of this Afro culture that has to connect with Catholicism, right? Because then suddenly the guy is playing percussion not to a god, African god. He's playing percussion to St. George. St. George, you know, like it's, it's all mixed up. And then the celebrations are Catholic celebrations, but they are you know, St. John or, you know, whatever, St. George or something, or the carnival, it's kind of the Catholic Church brings, uh, takes ownership of those celebrations somehow. And then also have the natives getting all together as well, because uh, Brazil was proud of being a country of mixing culture, different, completely different from the United States that have all their apartheid situation, you know, um, I consider the United States more like a salad bowl than a melting pot, basically. What do you mean by that? So a bunch of separate elements put together, but not really mixed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed yeah. to yeah. a melting pot where they're all melted. Yes. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. yeah. And of course, in, in the United States, you would have like only black, you know, in Brazil, it was the same, you know, of course, the, 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 all this uh, uh, racial situation was happening too, but in a different way. But culturally and music, musically speaking, they were more integrated in a way, 
right? So that's the way the Brazilian music was born. And, and then coming back to my time when I was practicing, so we don't get lost in this. But uh, <laughs> It's very interesting stuff, man. So I was uh, like studying and, and trying to learn because I had my guitar heroes, right? My guitar heroes, or you know, as I mentioned, Steve Vai or Satriani, all the Shrapnel Record guys and all that. But at the same time, on the radio or my mother, I uh, remember my mother was always showing me those amazing Brazilian songs and they have like complicated harmonies. And then it's, I was like, okay, I can play the Scorpion. The Scorpion's song, I can, with one chord, I can play the entire catalog. Or with one power chord, I can play the whole Iron Maiden catalog. But if I want to play this Brazilian song, that's complicated. That's, yeah, I need to know like a bunch of chords. So that, that was fascinating me as well, you know. Because any guy in any bar, you know, like a random guy, would be playing those chords, right? And singing the, our normal... TV, you know, like the radio songs or the soap opera TV songs with those complicated harmonies that would be more connected to Wayne Shorter or Herbie Hancock or something like that. But that was the, that was the radio songs, you know? So with Brazilian music, just out of curiosity, is it something that's formally taught the way that, say, orchestral music and harmony is formally taught? Or is it something that somehow that is super complex and has this super deep history but for some reason it's just passed on culturally among people that you don't sit there and learn the harmony inside out you just learn it by hearing it and it just makes sense because you're around it i think it's always both you know because okay. it's not it's not that easy to just if you really want when I play it, you have to study. This is not that easy. Yeah, it's pretty sophisticated stuff. It's it's not like a G A. You know, it's not an ACDC riff. You know, you know, it's like it's much more than that. So you know, maybe the few chords uh, you could learn, but you have to practice more because it's it's deeper. It's it's more sophisticated, but it's part of the culture. It's it's like if you talk about flamenco. You know, and it's just like everybody that plays flamenco, I have this feeling that everybody has an amazing right-hand technique. It's just part of the culture. If you don't have that, you're not playing the style. You know what I mean? Gypsies, too. Yeah, exactly. So it's like maybe country guitar. You have to have that technique, you know. If you don't have that, you're not playing the, you know, the, the, like the banjo kind of fast things. That's part of the style. If, you don't, if you're not able to do it, you're not playing the style. So if you if you're not able to understand harmony, or if you're not able to have a, a, a vocabulary of chords, you're not playing the style. You're not able to play Brazilian music, so you're out of the game. Simple as that. So you you go back and play your your rock and roll. <laughs> so all right. So all that understood. How did it relate to your practice when you were 17? So I wanted to know Brazilian music because that seemed to be sophisticated and I wanted to be good and to be good was not about playing the Ingvie Malmsteen lick to be good was to play the bossa nova songs so you had to learn all these different things to be able to do it I had this like a dichotomy kind of things like I wanted to to play like Ingvie Malmsteen or Steve Vai 
I know that school is fast, so I, it's the, the, the technical thing, but I want to be able to play those chords, those harmonies. So I was dividing my time and my practicing into technical things, you know, alternate. I'm left-handed, so I always had like, I was always struggling to, to you know, to play alternate picking and sweep picking. So I was like practicing a lot alternate picking and sweep picking for a specific time per week, you know, and then also learning the Brazilian songs and learning the chords and studying harmony and reading books. And this material we, we had in Brazil, books with the songs, with Brazilian songs, that, that material I could go to a bookstore and buy, right? So it was a little bit easier to learn Brazilian music or the songs, you know, to play the acoustic guitar and sing along kind of thing, but those more uh, sophisticated chords, that was easier to find material like that than to find a songbook from Steve Vai, you know. So I was kind of a, dividing my time. So my practicing was, in a way, I think it was back in the day, it was pretty organized because I knew uh, what to practice that week, that day. So I was making like a, you know, a, commit, a commitment to myself because I just wanted to learn stuff, you know. So, like, Monday I will practice this, Tuesday I will practice this, Wednesday, that's the day of this, you know. I had this uh, routine, which was, I did, nobody told me, but that's what you do at school, right? So I just took the school, normal, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, schedule, you know, and then put to music. So if in the school I, I, I have, to, like on Monday you have maths and whatever, science and sports, whatever, I would do the same. So Monday I practice sweep picking and then uh, harmony and uh, reading, side reading. And Tuesday I will practice, you know, composition, improvisation and blah, 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 you know. So I also organizing like that, you know, with the, with the information that I had by at the time, which was the school information. Like, okay, I'm gonna do like a, my school time. So in the afternoon and at night, so I was playing, you know, a few hours a day, maybe four or five hours a day. That's very interesting. So you basically, you knew how to learn. And so you just modeled what you learned about how to learn from school and just applied it to guitar. Seems seems logical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, if I can give an advice now, it's like, you have to learn how to learn. If something you have to learn, is how to learn. <laughs> because once you learn how to learn and how to practice correctly, you will evolve faster. And then you will have this feeling that you're evolving. Then it's, things are getting better. And then you get more excited about whatever you're learning. And then you go faster. And then you spend more time because you're getting results. And then our brain... Uh, there, uh, the, the brain is wired to, to have good feelings when we evolve, when you perform. That's the way human beings are wired. Because we have to perform. We have to discover new things and learn and, uh, and, uh, and feel good about ourselves because we are evolving as a, as a person. So do you think that the fact that you studied how to learn so early and incorporated that and just made that made that your thing basically figuring out exactly how to do it that's part of what enabled you to learn the megadeth songs so fast for instance oh yeah oh yeah yeah because then it's part of your life you know yeah and 
dance is part of your life. Everything you do is like, okay, is, that a, is, the, is there a system? Okay, I have to learn 16 songs from the first concert in Megadeth. Is that a system that I can apply for this learning? You know, because the Megadeth songs are not so complicated. But again, if you want to play in your bedroom, they might not be so complicated. But if you want to perform live with a lot of people watching you... Doing it for real is complicated. Yeah, you have to minimize the fuck-ups, you know. And you have to, minim you have to me be mentally prepared for anything. Because it might be that your guitar doesn't work. It might be that your guitar is out of tune. It might be that the guitar of Dave is out of tune. Or it might be the drum... The drum something happens to the drums. And, uh, you, you know, there's a lot of uh, possibilities. So you have to be prepared. So, yeah, then is there a system to learn this stuff? Yeah, so it's like you have the song, so you have to learn the song. The song is the structure of the song, right? Because you might know how to play the solo, but you might, what about after the solo, which part comes? Is this the chorus or is the another verse or is the different part? Megadeth, for me, the complicated part is not only the, the solos, are the structure of the songs, mainly the first songs are like all over the place, like different different parts that evolves. The song doesn't have a, like a, a normal pop structure of verse, you know, chorus kind of solo. And, you know, later on, yes, you know, all the 90s songs, much easier to, although the solos from Art Friedman are difficult, but the songs are easier because the structure is, is like, you know, is like more, you know, standard let's say yeah so first you have the structure of the song just the structure then you have uh you know the rhythms of the songs and maybe the rhythms or the chords you know the harmony understanding the harmony or what's going on uh why you know those chords and that leads to another one you know the the the, the harmony right the progressions and then you have the riffs, the technical part of the riffs. Sometimes make a death, you have some complicated stuff. And then you have the solos, right? The solos. And then you isolate all those parts. So solos is another thing. Maybe you have some duets, you know, uh, two guitars duets. Um, that's another thing. And then you have, what else? And then you have some backing vocals. So, you know. And then are you able to sing? Then you have to memorize the lyrics of the backing vocals. That's not a big deal. Normally it's like few phrases, but anyways, it's a thing that you have to keep in mind. Are you able to play the riff and sing? As I'm not, you know, like a singer. So it might be a thing to practice as well, to sing and play at the same time. Um, what else? I'm just trying to think about the. That is a system, right? You're going through the, the parts. Every part has a. And then you have the stage performance. So, can you visualize every part of the song where you're going to be on stage? You know? Because it's a big stage. And it might be the first verse, I'm uh, stage left. Second verse, stage right. Solo center stage. Dave Mustaine solo, I'm back, uh, back close to the drums. So when you had to learn 16 of these for the first time, do you have all of those things basically like a checklist or a criteria, basically? In a, in a way, yes, yes. But right, right away, some songs are easier than other ones. And then, you, and then you, okay, this song is a problem, you know. But what I do first in, in the case that I have to listen, that I have to learn the, the, the songs, I listen a lot. Because I believe that if you ask me to play... 
I don't know, The Number of the Beast or some like Power Slave song from Iron Maid. I, I, I was a big fan, so I was listening all the time. Even if I never learned how to play that song, I probably know the structure. Because it just comes naturally. Yeah, because you know, because you know it like a listener. You know exactly because you just know it. So what I do, I I behave like a fan. So I put those, I put the playlist of that show and just like all the time listening, just listening. I don't pay attention. I just listen. I might sing along. I just you know just just like a fan, and then I believe this helps a lot, because in a moment of uh, a difficult situation on stage. Let's say you just played a part, like the first verse, and then what comes next? The second verse or a bridge or the chorus right away or a solo? You know, there are many possibilities. And that moment of the transition, somebody from the audience look at you and make it do something. And then you just go to that person. Your focus go to that person. That happens a lot. And, you're, and then you lose the transition. But... I guess if you listen to the song a million times, then it just goes naturally. Exactly, it just goes naturally. It makes sense, you know. You know, just go. You know, that's of course that's the next part. The verse keeps going, or now is the chorus, or now comes the solo. So it's just the the fast reaction. In in music or anything is how fast you react. So there is never a mistake. Mistake. It's like how fast you react to the mistake. And that's what you practice as well. Because you, you will play wrong chords, you will play uh, wrong solos, wrong notes. That's for sure. Because we're not a computer, we're not machines. Something's gonna happen, somebody's gonna look at you, the, you know, something's gonna get you distracted and then you're gonna miss that note. And how fast you go, go back on track. And this is fractions of a second. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, you train, you train, how to get back, and then also not to be affected by the mistake, you know? So the mistake's like you laugh. And then once you laugh, uh, and that's very hard, it's easy to say, but because depending on the situation, if you're in a, doing a guitar clinic and you have 10 people in front of you and you know, you know everybody's a great guitar player and you, you know, <laughs> like play like a wrong note, you're probably gonna be like, fuck, ah. Oh. And then probably the rest of the clinic is gonna be horrible. Yeah, you know what I mean, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so how to learn to go back to the to perfect state of mind that you're confident? This you have to learn. How do you do that? Well, that's I mean, it's it's it's, it's basically uh, taking life as uh, I mean, like being very. You have to laugh at yourself. You just have to laugh, and then and uh, acknowledging that you're a human being. And then it's always going to be mistakes, always. And then uh, that's very hard, but that's, uh, that would be my advice. You know, just laugh. Just like, of course, that's like a common question. Like, <laughs> People have asked you that? Have you ever made a mistake? All the time. <laughs> really? All the time, because they think that uh, some level of guitar players, they don't do any mistake. They stop being human. And, and then I say like, all the time. And it's like, all the time. I can spot the mistakes like all the time, many, hundreds. But some some of the mistakes I notice you might not because I react so fast that you don't notice. Or sometimes even like I I know I'm gonna you know it's like almost the mistake doesn't happen, but you know it was about to happen. 
you know yep. what I mean? Because it was like, oh, and then you react so fast that it's okay. You know, you may you might get to that note a little bit late because your your brain just you know got confused, but it's okay. But you got of, there. You got there somehow, or weird in a weird way, but you got there. That's why uh, it's very hard to listen to myself because I can spot all the mistakes, and then I don't like it. <laughs> But uh, it's necessary as well, you know. But uh, I think that's the, the, the first thing. Like, we do a lot of mistakes during concert or any situation. And then it's, it's okay. Basically, it would be like, it's okay to, to play a wrong note. It's okay to, to play a wrong phrase or not to perform. So that would be like a mantra to repeat. And then I'm here to have fun. I'm here to, to enjoy and then you because when you performance uh, performing there's no way to it's not a practicing moment you know what i mean so you're there to perform so now and the audience can tell if you're not enjoying yourself so you have to enjoy you have to to do it and then it might be like for the next show you go back to your room and f sit down and practice that specific spot because it might be a mistake, it, it, it might be a random thing that you know you can play again correctly. But if you're always having a problem or difficulties in a certain spot, then you have a problem and this you have to practice. So it's different to have like a fuck up because, you know, something happened that moment and then you, you played wrong, you know. Or you're walking and then your guitar moves in a weird way and then you miss that note. A simple, easy note, but if you all the time happens the same thing, you know the same mistake. Now you have a problem. You don't know how to play that part, and then you have to acknowledge that. Go back to your room and sit down and repeat that part specifically that part many times until you get it. Do you think that part of uh, learning how to laugh at it and enjoy it and not torture yourself uh, in the moment? comes from doing it a lot being on stage enough times to where because i feel like if you don't perform very often every single show is going to matter that much more to you it's going to be that much more of a big 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 deal yeah because you don't have the second chance the second chance it might come the next month or the next year that's a problem when you have the second chance the next night it's okay to laugh it's like oh tomorrow can do it better but sometimes you don't have a second chance. You know, it's always a moment of truth because for the audience, that's their chance to see you. They're seeing you every two years. Yeah. You might be playing another concert tomorrow, but that audience seeing you for the first time and then it might see you, you know, you never know, in two years. Or you have a situation that you have to play in a TV show or somebody's filming the thing and it's gonna be there forever. That's difficult. So even, even people that play it a lot, they have their moment of truth, right? You practice your whole career, you played many, many shows, and suddenly you're like in a whatever TV show, you know, like I did the Seth, uh, Seth Meyer with Megadeth and play, we played Tornado and, uh, and Dystopia, I guess. That was like one take, and you have to play, you know, the TV show, that solo that everybody expects. You have one chance. How did it go? I think it was fine. I don't know if it was, I think it was that one. You know, like when the string 
gets into the, the pickup and stays there. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it happened. I have to look. I think it was in this one. And it happened. And it's like, I can't believe. And then I, I have the reaction of taking the string like so fast. It's just like the reaction. because Of course, because I've been doing this for a long time. So I sometimes have the reaction to uh, it's very fast. But I think it happened that on the TV show. So imagine, you know, you don't have a second chance. You cannot ask the whole TV set, you, oh, sorry, my, my solo was not so good. Can we do it again? It's like, this, this, they don't care. People don't care. You know, it's like, it's so fast, those TV shows. So we do have uh, the moment of truth. But of course, concerts, I mean, when you're playing with a band, it's fine. You know, you have, you know, a lot of people there. You know, I don't think people care that much. You know, the audience care that much if they enjoy. But it's, so you find this balance because... It might be that you think that people don't care and then you start not caring. So that's a dangerous place to go because then start start not caring and then you, your plane start going <laughs> down, right? So I guess it's got to be a balance. Back to the balance idea. It's a balance. So, so you have to care, you know, even if you know that the audience, because it's about you, how much you care about your performance. In the end, it's like about you as well, you know. I mean... M- m- mainly about you, you know? So I remember there's like a, a, I'm a big fan of Paco de Lucia, which is the flamenco. Oh yeah, it's great. And then he has a documentary and then he, there's a moment uh, in the documentary, uh, somebody shows a, a, a recording of somebody playing acoustic, you know, the, the flamenco guitar. And he says like, oh, that's awesome. And then the, the guy is saying like, oh, that's you. And so, oh no, no, that, that's not good. <laughs> because if, if you see us, you know, having yourself listening to you, you're much more critical. You know, you're much more judgmental, right? You kind of should be. You should be, you know. If it's somebody else playing, you're going to be, of course, the guy is awesome, you know, because, you know, you're happy to see somebody playing uh, well. And you don't care about the little mistakes or whatever the person is doing. But when it's about you, you have to care. And that's why I think it was a, it's a good part of that uh, documentary because if we can talk about the guy was have a, like a perfect, perfect technique the entire life, flawless. This guy, there's one of those that I, I think he never did any mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, so, um, yes, it's, it's, it's good to see the, 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 the mental and the, the mental state that he has, like not accepting any little... You know, mistakes from himself, you know, but uh, being okay. That's how he got so awesome, right? I mean, obviously talent and hard work, but without having that attitude the whole time, there's no way he would have kept on improving. Exactly, yeah. Of course, when you play solo, it's complicated, you know. Uh, playing guitar in a rock band is much easier in this sense. But playing alone, like acoustic guitar, it's like going naked. Yeah, it sounds crazy. You know, fucking like every little mistake you can hear. You know, it's so difficult, you know, being on stage by yourself and every all, full attention, 100% of the attention on you, you know. So that's that's pretty hard. In a, in a band, you have like the drummer, the singer, the other guitar player, the bass, you know, whatever lights. and Distortion. The, and distortion and delays, you know, <laughs> and the <laughs> reverb of the room and the beer. Which is very helpful. <laughs> so yeah, so so yeah, the best thing would be giving giving like a beer to everybody in the room, <laughs> or two. so so or two or three. Then you're like yeah. awesome player. <laughs> so yeah, 
Some people, they, some people, I don't drink, so uh, I don't drink, you know, to go on stage. It would be a problem. But probably I would feel much better if I drink. But would you play much better? That's. <laughs> but I, I would think that I'm playing much better. I <laughs> per se. I remember I did, a, I did a clinic. I was like, what's a show? Like, like maybe a thousand people in Chile, and the sponsor was Red Bull or something like that. <laughs> and oh, then wow. everybody got a can of this Red Bull for free. So it was the best show in my life. So everybody was <laughs> like screaming and jumping and super excited. That sounds like an awesome audience. Yeah, yeah, that's the best thing. You just give give a Red Bull can to everybody in the audience, then you're gonna have an awesome show. So the not drinking thing, is that something that you decided, like, do you not drink at all? Or is it just, I don't drink before a show? No, I, sometimes because I, I I drink some wine. Sometimes I don't. I'm not a big fan of beer, wine. Yes. Yeah, so sometimes during the show I do drink. I think it's it, it might be helpful, maybe by the half of a glass or something, oh, kind okay. of uh, Just... you know. Uh, but never never before, or it, it might it might be like if I feel like so like okay give just I ask the the the, the crew like oh leave a leave a glass there. Uh, uh, you know, back, uh, behind the behind the cabinets or something, you know, and uh, am I I might drink, I might not, you know, but it really depends. But this is like far after half of the tour, so you're like, you know, you've been playing a lot already, or like, mm-hmm. you know, you're more like in the, the, it's confident about the whole thing. So yeah, so it might happen like this, but never in a clinic, never. I think clinics are much more difficult. They sound difficult. Yeah, because you know, just you're just you know, it's only you, so full attention on you. What do you prefer? Uh, they're so so different. It's like, uh, do you prefer recording? Like recording is another thing as well. Can we talk about recording for a second? Of course. Uh, you surprised me when you told me that you were in URM, but uh, I want to hear about like why you started recording yourself and whether you feel like that's something that musicians now, a modern musician, should do. I believe a modern musician, a younger guy, just was born into this technology, the, 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 having the technology around. You know, that's what I see. You know, so you 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 start playing already. You know, like you know, having a Guitar Pro or watching videos on YouTube and uh, edit, having a Garage Band right in front of you. You know, there or some some sort of a free. Um, recording you know uh, software or something plugins and things like this so that's part of your you know uh, your life so uh, when i had my first computer i think i was 20 something so i was already you know a, a professional when i bought my first computer when i had I, when i tried to pl- you know you know to turn on a computer you know <laughs> so it's a completely different thing you know maybe hard to for you guys to imagine that I experienced the transition too, so I, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So my my first recording, I mean, I remember the guy, the the, the producer then in Germany in '93. He had a Pro Tools, and then we recorded on tape. But there was one riff of one song. The guy wanted to be very precise, and then he said, "Okay, let me turn on the computer." So we're gonna record this one riff. So he recorded that one riff on Pro Tools. And then uh, he recorded. He it was a beta test, but he was a you know a Charlie Bauer find. So I was gonna say '93 Pro Tools. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So he was. It was a beta. Te- he was like a 
a guy a producer with you know good a big name in Germany, so he's kind of beta testing stuff. So I remember, oh, that's a beta test of whatever Pro Tools, whatever. You know, I was not into computer, so I. I but I remember like turning on the computer and then he recorded the riff there and then put it together, the riff, and then back on tape, you know, and then uh, on the, the, the two-inch uh, tape. So that was the first album. The second album, 95, again, same producer, that was the ADAT. So people were recording albums in the VHS tapes, right? So it sounds funny, but I was already digital stuff. You still have you still have to wait the the, the tape to rewind and <laughs> which sounds funny nowadays, you know. You have to wait the tape. Oh, to, I remember it. Yeah. So uh, I mean, you have to play, basically. You have to play, and then and then it's just interesting. I saw like maybe last year, like this uh, this a lot of talking about the guitar players are faking stuff on YouTube and faking stuff on Instagram, right? There's a lot of uh, hype on that stuff. And I take this as a, just like a, uh, the evolution of the, the mentality of recording. Because back in the day, you had to play. You couldn't fake. One thing they did fake, though, back in the day. So I think faking is just part of what humans do. So back in the day, maybe they couldn't fake the playing, but they would fake the player. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they bring an awesome guitar player to do the solo and then pretend like it was the guy in the band. So they were still faking it just appropriate for the technology of the time. Yes, exactly. They were like bringing other players and uh, to, to record well. And this was taken as a normal, uh, having a band, like a professional musicians to record, it was taken as a normal thing. Not the mini yes. Vanilli. The mini Vanilli stuff was a different thing. I do, you probably don't know what it was that, but anyways. Oh, no, no. Well, I know mainly. <laughs> they were pretending they were singing. Yes. So it was okay. So uh, let's say, you know, a, a great singer would have a band and that band would be one band in the studio and then another band live because the studio guys would be a professional studio guys and then live performance would be some... It happened with metal bands and rock bands too. Some of the biggest... I'm not going to name anybody here, but let's. I know one of the very biggest rock bands of all time with a very iconic lead guitar player. Uh, he was. I can tell you who it is after this, but it. He can. He was too drunk to record anything, and so they had a. They just had one of those Nashville type guys come in and fucking do it and i've heard of that happening on so many rock and metal records all throughout time yeah so not just the pop scenario where it's like the live band and the studio band it could be yeah i don't know much about the you know the metal history of in this sense but it makes sense it, it exists because because well the music business is is uh there's another conversation about music business <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know the the record labels, the record labels are like, a, what, what is a record label? It's a marketing agency and a bank together. Mm -hmm. And a mafia. <laughs> okay, could be too. But it's, it's a bank because it finance, you know, it's like startup, it's like a, a venture capitalist, right? So find 10 great artists, put money in those tra uh, 10 great artists or 10 great bands and see which one survive and pays the whole thing, the whole nine uh, uh, other ones, and then makes money for everybody. 
right? It's like a, a venture capitalist that put money in, 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 and wait that you're going to find an Uber or... Uh, find the Slipknot. Yeah. Find the Nickelback. Exactly. Find the Gansler Roses or something, yeah. right? right? So basically, the, so it's, 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 it's a bank and creating assets. The assets are the master tapes and uh, the songs, right? Once they have the assets, they can sell the assets or they keep the assets or in the catalog or whatever. So... It's, it's like bu- building a house. So you pay for those people to, to build a house, to, to create the master, and then the record company own the house. Okay, they own the, the masters. And then they're going to try to rent that house, which is the master, to TV show or somebody to pay royalties on that. And then that's the music business, right? And get the dividends from those masters or from those songs, right from the copyrights of the songs so and they they have to do this through a certain time because it's a business and then they have the overhead of the the people working in the in the office so you have to the band has to deliver fucking a, an album a year because then it makes makes sense you know for the business for them to invest they have the return on investment has to happen you know and then if the guy's drunk yeah, bring another guy because I have I need my return on investment. How much is the to bring another guy? Call the union, see how much is the the payment for per hour for this guy. Put them to record and then let's let's do it. The end. Yeah, get it over end. with. Yeah, because they cannot deal with uh, drunk people or dr- you know drug addicts or something like that. You know, maybe the more famous get the the the, the artists, then they have to deal with that. You know. And then it is, and, and then they have to deal with that, and then you start having some, uh, you know, like a best offs or or live shows or some other stuff. They can they can monetize and they can get their dividends from the past masters or the past uh, um, songs uh, or you know do all this stuff. So that's the that's the way it works because it's a bank, and then they have to have the the return on the investment. And then it's a marketing company because they find the product and then most of the time they design the product. So if changing the who's re- recording, it doesn't matter because who's producing Coca-Cola? You don't know. It's just, you know, the formula is there. Like if I create a formula that is a, a Gensler Rose formula, it's nobody's going to see who's recording because the formula is there. As long as it sounds like slash exactly i mean though though slash played his own shit i'm just using that as an example yeah yeah guess and rose is just saying like the example but any any other band you know if if he's not the singer or if he's not a signature thing you know maybe the bass line or just a drummer or something and then that's it and then if you hire a professional the profession professional might be able to mimic that artist because mm-hmm. the guy's a fucking professional so he can play drums like Ringo Starr okay I can play you know like whatever you know or like Newport or Paul uh, McCartney <laughs> open, uh, you know I, I pro- probably you know and uh, of course in, in pop music people really don't pay that much attention most of the time or who is playing the bass or the drums or something so that easier to do it like this than a iconic you know Iron Maiden you cannot fake Nico you cannot fake Dave Murray so you cannot fake it's not possible, you know, the the iconic. You cannot fake uh, uh, the voice of a singer of a of a metal band. 
So then the then uh, the return on investment is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. For instance, one thing that is very common now is, and this is not a bad thing, but it is a common thing, is that even if session players aren't really an industry like they used to be, like one thing that is common on metal recordings is like for, you know, when tracking guitars, for instance, it's not always the even the guitar player who tracks some of that stuff, like say that the drummer happens to have the best right hand for certain riffs. The drummer will be the one tracking that stuff. I've seen that so many times, or uh, there's one guitar player that writes everything and another one who just is a better rhythm guitar player. That guy will end up playing it. So I feel like within metal and rock bands, it's almost like they have built in session players I think that's okay in this sense, you know. I think uh, because that's a band, you know, and I think that band is there to help each other, you know. Yes. And uh, uh, I was the guy uh, recording in Angra, you know. I recorded a lot of rhythm guitars just because it's easier to double yourself than to double somebody else, and it sounds more precise. And then if the bass player is uh, wrote the song and then he he's great to play the 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 rhythm tracks, why not? You know, if the drummer can do some stuff, or can, why not? You know, you cannot hide that. The problem is like if you hide, and you know, or if the guitar player is like horrible and the bass player is much better. But uh, in a band, it's fine. You know, I think I was talking about the, the time you recorded uh, on tape. So recorded on tape, you had to play. So what happened with Angra in this time of the tape? We had to change the drummer. The pro- it was a different approach. So the producer would say, like, well, you, you're not able to record. I'm sorry. Find another guy. And then if you read the album, it's like drums recorded by, and then it's like another guy. Oh, was the, the drummer just couldn't, couldn't play? Couldn't hang. To that level. To that level. And then he has his picture on the album, but they are like drums. But it's in the album's recording. It's like written there small. Drums recorded by Alex, which was a German guy. Yeah. But that was like back in the day, right? Because you couldn't fake. You couldn't fake. You couldn't... I mean, there was a little bit of a sample happening already, but it was just too complicated. You need a guy that goes there and fucking play. You could not edit the way that you edit drums now. Exactly, yeah. You know, you could maybe like record half of the song and then, you know, during a break, during a break of the song, during the song, and they could try to, you know, punch in drums. So guitars... You could punch in as well, so the solos, you could, you know, of course, with the tape. It was just a bit more complicated, and then you have to learn how to press the record, <laughs> the record because there was like a, uh, you, you, you would learn the timing of the head, of the record head to touch the tape. It was like a fraction of a second. So you have to press record a little bit before the actual note. So don't fuck up the, the previous thing, <laughs> you know, because if you erase the previous thing, you erase. There's no like, okay, let me uns- <laughs> undo it. <laughs> command Z. <laughs> There's no command Z. So, uh, so you, you learn how to do it and you live with that thing. So when you come to ADAT, um, then you, have, you could edit a little, not edit, but you could punch in and out a little bit more, you know, and more precise, right? And then when the Pro Tools came, then you could do more stuff. But funny, funny enough, the producers, in uh, I mean late '90s, early 2000s, the producers they have the mentality of 
We cannot fake. So, very different from nowadays. They would make you play the whole song. Believe it or not. <laughs> play like, oh, like yeah. you're playing. You're like, play. Yeah, but to repeating the verse like 10 times doesn't matter. You play. Because the first verse verse has to be a different feeling from the second verse, even if it's exactly the same. So they would make you play the whole song and then not doing this would sound very illegal or not, you know. And nowadays people, oh, no, no, yeah, just just record like the four, the four bars here that repeats, then I can just like... Just give me these four notes. Yeah, then I can fly around and then do it. So that's a very common and natural thing. And then uh, I think just the, the the way people approach recording and uh, is very different from the from those times. Even at times with Pro Tools, because the producers and were coming from the from the from the ADAT or the tape, that people had to play for real, and then had to play the entire song. There was no way to fly around and repeat parts and you know uh, uh, control. You know like what a control c control v thing you know and then uh and uh and and correct the whole thing right so i think it's just a evolution in a way i i say it's an evolution because also you have less money from the industry so you cannot spend a lot of time recording an album you cannot you have you know it's, it does a budget as well and uh, you might be recording from home and then you have to use those the technology, and I believe that people you have to be back to efficiency. You have to be as efficient as possible. And also, the listener has different ears. Yeah, it's it's crazy when I hear stuff from different eras. Like I remember back in the day, like hearing that uh, what's that Motley Crue song, the one where he played, where Tommy Lee plays the piano. Home sweet home. Home sweet home. Home sweet home. That's right. Okay, so. Home Sweet Home, and I rem my dad's got perfect pitch. So I remember hearing it back in the day, and my dad was like, please turn this off. He's so flat, I can't handle it. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And uh, years, years later, like a few years ago, I was in an Uber, and the guy was blasting 80s rock, and Home Sweet Home came on. And I couldn't believe how flat it was. And well, I, I have to listen it. to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should listen to it. It's so, the vocals are so out of tune. It's crazy that obviously my dad heard it back in the 90s, but me as a young listener did not notice. I had no idea what he was talking about. And now, you know, I, the standards have changed. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the good ex another good example is the uh, Beat It solo. Uh, for me, it's one of the best solos ever done in history uh, the van halen song and that's completely flat yep yeah right i mean i i've never noticed i always thought that and still like one of the greatest solos ever but it's flat but the other van halen solos were it sound like old old days punch you know like uh punching in the the parts like blocks that his solos and the they, they sound like and then that was a that was some kind of a magic as well, because even if you listen to the jump solo, you can see the parts and the con like not really connected. And that the same goes for the new the new guys now. It's like all uh, using all this technology, and then it sounds different and sounds modern because it's using technology. It's not only coming from their heads. It's coming from the technology, the way you record, and that creates a new sound. And that's why 
it sounds like 2020. It's the way you record, the way you approach, and you, you, you don't care about repeating parts. You don't care about, uh, even like Meshuga started doing this in the 90s, composing the bass drums of, you know, the rhythms, like messing around with the MIDI, and then learning how to play. So this is a completely backward way. Uh, if you compare to a Van Halen, like let's go to a room and jam forever and then see what comes up. And then that's the style that most of the people would think instead of, okay, let me get a piano roll here, put some notes randomly, and then until sounds cool, and then I try to learn that thing. But it sounds like you're, like you're okay with this modern way. Of course. I just, I'm saying that that's interesting because lots of times people who came from the other way of doing things really disapprove of the modern way of doing things, which honestly I think is kind of dumb, but, uh, but it's cool that you came from the old way of doing things and have still adopted the new way and you got the, like the best of both worlds. Yeah. Well, I have, I have like my new album, Open Source. Recording with uh, Adair, Delphenbach, and then his younger. And he was like, I was like, no, no, let me play the part. You know, I want I still have this inside me. No, I want to play the part. No, no, but we can't do it. Can't. No, 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 I want to play. You know, just for me, I know it's going to take more time. I know I'm still, I need time to practice that thing, but I still have the feeling that I want to play. I know the computer can do it for me, but I want to play. And I think... Uh, so the, I still carry that with me, but that's more like a personal thing. And then sometimes I say like, okay, just yeah, do it whatever you want, and then you know it's gonna be faster, and then it will sound modern as well. So I know that, but uh, denying denying the new ways uh, of technology uh, is not understanding how music works because music was always driven by technology. So. You know, back in the days, you have whatever, you have to write your own music in, in a paper and that music would be only there. And then who has the paper can play that music. And then, mm-hmm. then start the copyright because some other people would copy, you know, and then would ship, you know, send a mail that piece of music so another orchestra could play that in another country. So Beethoven started doing that in selling the copies, getting money for writing so the technology always always uh, bring that so when, when you have whatever the 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 keyboard the the you know the electronic stuff or the 80s with all the synths and then it's, everything is changing and then you have a new sound so n- new ways of recording new ways of uh, uh of you know being even in the 70s you know or even hendrix with the effects and pedals and stuff you know so that was only that's why I think like a Tosin Abazi is like such an amazing player because he's taking guitar to the future. Mm-hmm. Because normally you see a lot of guitar players going backwards in a good way, you know, like okay, I'm gonna get my strat and I'm gonna sound like the old masters but with a modern technique. But it always kind of I, I need to buy my vintage strat or like going vintage is the cool you know there's a lot of things like this or playing the the old licks but in a modern way or with better technique. But like Tosin Abazi is like uh, thinking forward because he's adding the modern elements to it you know the eight strings or 
or the you know the fractal or the neuro DSP, uh, those elements that helps to make music sounds modern, and then evolving to a new level. And, you know, he's doing the Meshuga stuff. I know, I'm aware of. It's like it comes from the Meshuga, so it comes in the evolution of the Meshuga kind of songwriting. Uh, you know, but he's using the technology to make it the sound. So it's not only about music; it's about technology. If I'm sorry, I got lost <laughs> saying those stuff, but I think you understood. I hope absolutely understood. But again, coming back to the past, I think the uh, what, look at what I'm gonna say. People are gonna kill me. I think the Instagram fake. It's okay because I mean, I don't agree. I don't do that. But I'm old. I think it's just. We have to understand that's gonna that's the new that's the new way of doing things, because as you said, there was always a fake way, and we have to learn how to deal with the fake, because some people just like to see the guy faking, putting like 1.25 speed, and then, you know, correcting every note. I think the the bad side of this Instagram is like Instagram the guy playing his bedroom, you know, in his bed and the like very basic stuff you think that this should be him just playing for real in his bedroom but now that and it, it was like this right but now we have a new way of doing instagram videos which like you put all the your bedroom environment but the recording is like fucking professional <laughs> yeah it's hilarious so i think that's it's okay because look in the past you have to play for real if you're not able, you have to hire somebody that's able to do it, so it was faking. So then you have the ADAT and the early days of Pro Tools. Now you have to play the whole song. You cannot fake that you played just half of the bridge and then copy-paste. Uh, you have to play the whole song because you have to be true to yourself. This is gone. Now you fucking play like one, one time the part and then the producer fly the whole thing around and make it perfect for you. Even the drummers, they play one time, that's good, that's good, you know, sit down in the lounge and then I fix the whole thing for you. So some some drummers, some guitar players, they will be proud, you know, they have this pride, so they, they wanna play for real, but it's not necessary and people are okay with that. They don't care because in the end, they want a perfect sound. And then, okay, so it's okay to be perfect on the album, but it's not okay to to fake on, on live gigs. So the, the only way to see if the guy was good enough was to go to a concert. But at some point, people start faking on the concerts as well. Because the live gig should be live. And then you, you, you need to hear that's live, so with errors and mistakes. But at some point in time, to have, you know, middle, I don't know, 2005, 2006, people start faking the live gigs. With yep. the pre-recorded stuff. And then at some point people said, actually, it's okay. Because I want to hear like, just like the album. I want to hear a massive, perfect show. You know? And then suddenly it's okay. And then it comes the Instagram, which is the guy playing for real in his bedroom. Oh, that's cool. That's, that's real. That's real. And then the competition gets so deep into like being perfect that people start fixing what they play on their bedrooms. And then getting better, getting better. And now they're faking what they're playing in their bedrooms. And then it's, and at some point, and then we're leaving that moment that people are faking what they're playing in the bedrooms. And they're like, we were complaining the same way we were complaining 
why the bands were faking live shows the same way we were complaining some people were faking on their albums. So now people accept pe people, uh, musicians faking on their album. We have accept people faking on their live shows. And it's just a few years for us to accept people faking on the Instagram. And the next thing will be, there will be the next thing that people don't accept. The next thing, well, yeah, you like the TikTok faking or whatever. But, <laughs> but, the, but the next thing is like, you are aware of who plays and who doesn't play. I don't get tricked by the guys who's faking. Because I, I know. I, I, you know I, I go, if I want to see a, a great guy playing, I just watch a video of Guthrie Govan. <laughs> it's like, that's for real. Because I, I, I had the chance of several times to play in front of him. That's a, re that's a real playing. And you can hear it's real. It's like fucking accurate. It's like, it's the most perfect, or Guthrie Govan or some other guys too, you know. That's the most perfect you can, you can do. Or Alan Holdsworth. Alan Holdsworth were playing in the 70s. He doesn't need to fake. If you watch all his concerts, you might find some because you mean, that's a perfection. And then that's what I like. You know, if I see an uh, Instagram guy playing, the sounds kind of, for me, it doesn't sound real. It's okay. I know. Okay, the guy can go on the Pro Tools and fix some stuff. Okay, good for him. He knows how to produce himself. That's the way I think. And you know, what's interesting too, though, is when you have a band like Meshuggah that you know they can do it. They can release an album with programmed drums and nobody will, nobody will care. So Because they did that, right? When the drummer hurt his wrist for a while. Since everybody already knew that he was great and that they're great. That's that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. They just didn't give a shit. So even Meshuggah. But it's about the music. Yeah. So, but even they were a, allowed to do something fake. But I think it's because people already respected them. Yeah, of course. As we were talking about, well, Van Halen was... Uh, punting in the solos and yeah cool it's Van Halen I love it it's great and then he's he's respected because he was doing that that was the way to do it and then Meshuga is respected because they created such a complicated kind of uh, music that has to come from programming the drums you know it has to come from there because a guy, although, or it has to come from Virgil Donati or guys like this. I believe, right? I don't know in depth the, the way they, they compose, but it has to come from programming and then to the, the real drums. Or, you know, and then it's not like jamming. Maybe nowadays, maybe now, I, we toured with them and I, I was asking them that, you know. So, of course, now there are so much, like, like 30 years doing that. Of course, they can jam like fucking complicated stuff after a while. But <laughs> you imagine? To, but to create the concept to get out, of, and then I think this is so amazing because to create a concept, they had to use technology in a different way. And they created that in the early 90s while everybody was doing, okay, you have to play correctly, you know, recording on tape, you cannot fake stuff. They went the opposite. Okay, let's program the stuff and then we try to play something weird programmed. It's like a composer would do. A composer, a classical composer, would have something in his mind and put the notes in the paper and then bring to an orchestra. And then Queen of the Night, the magic flute from Mozart, the singing was, back in the day was impossible. And they were saying like, oh, Mozart was writing, was writing for who? Find the singer. 
that can be able to play. So he had that thing in mind because that was the queen of the night and from him, for him, should be very high. So find the singer. Beethoven, same thing. And, he, and then until we have the Mishuga, you know. <laughs> But uh, if you can write on paper or on the, you know, on, on the computer, you're free to do whatever you want. Right, and then you figure out if you find uh, in the composers they find great orchestra, great musicians that will struggle to play that thing. If you have a band, you have to make the band has to be able to play that. I've been thinking for a long time that the piano roll is the modern version of notation paper. Oh yeah, yeah. In the way that composers used to use it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because some people talk down on the piano roll, but it fulfills the same function yeah people talk down because uh to to write to write uh, on paper you imagine that the person has to have the this, this, this sounds in their head or had to be able to play to hear what is there yeah but if beethoven was around now i bet you he'd be using the piano roll and have some orchestral libraries well he'd be deaf but Oh, that's that's yeah. But we do have so maybe not him, but I'm, I am I be exaggerating a little bit. But we do have a Mozart nowadays using the piano roll. Yeah, of course. A Jacob Collier. This guy is like this fucking Beethoven Mozart of our times. Or a Hans Zimmer. Not Hans Zimmer. I'm sorry, I'm Jacob Collier. This guy is like oh, uh, Jacob Collier is great. Yeah. So his his for me, you know, as a musician that I've been seeing a lot of great musicians, you know, throughout my life and. Uh, his, um, the guy said, you know, like out of this, <laughs> I, I, he's, he does stuff that I, I couldn't imagine a, a human being could do. It's out of my, you know, uh, you know, out of my universe, you know. And he's doing like the live streaming, showing how he does and all the piano roll. And he's a, so I think we have like a, a, a genius in front of us and we cannot watch him on YouTube. Uh, it's, an, it's amazing, you know, and um, yeah, he's using the piano roll. He could be writing the same thing on, on, on a paper, but why using the paper? Yeah, I think that it's, like you said, it's the technology has a lot to do with it. So if Mozart or Gustav Mahler or, who, or whoever had a computer and a piano roll and orchestral libraries, I'm, they would have used that. If Jacob Collier or... Danny Elfman lived in the 1700s, they'd write their stuff down. Yeah, the thing is, like, the difference is, like, if you don't, if you don't know much about music or, like, arrangement, you can put the notes in the piano row, and then you can see that the notes are clashing, or you can uh, hear, and then you can, you know, that the notes are clashing or something's going wrong, and then you can fix the notes right there. And back in the day, you really need to know, you, you, you had to know, Uh, rules of uh, arranging because you couldn't write the whole piece and then when you give to the orchestra and then things are like horrible and all clashing so you didn't have the the money and the time to experiment you know now you can just put stuff and it's like picture it's like taking photos you know back in the days you have like the film and then you have like 24 shots right and then if you miss that you know you, it costs money You know, so you really would think, okay, where should I use my 24 shots, you know, of this film? And then nowadays you have your phone, you can just blast like hundreds of pictures until one is good. So, 
so it makes uh, it, it makes life much easier for a photographer that can you know take hundreds of pictures and choose one and crop them or whatever you know it's the same in music you can try a lot of different arrangements and change the notes before you bring to the real orchestra or to the to the band to play because you know it's going to work now so that's the way i write my songs it's a beautiful thing i write my songs doing the demos and then programming the drums or putting the keyboards and then i can't see if it's not good i erase it start all over again is that why you decided to learn how to record so that you could record your own demos or is this something that you want to do seriously or yeah i just want to be with more knowledge about uh you know audio recording you know as much as sometimes i watch some stuff how to film myself better you know because i have to be a lot on youtube and stuff so i have to learn some little editing video editing or a little bit about lights and photography and of course the audio recording just to make it, you know, better, your demos better or faster, you know. And then, because my demos are okay for me, but, you know, they're not very presentable. <laughs> and it's a fun thing, you know, to know more about the art of recording as well. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to, to learn, you know. Do you think that being a modern musician, part of the job requirement of being a modern musician now involves knowing a little video knowing a little bit of editing, knowing a little bit of recording. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the older guys like me, even the older, guy, older, older guys, you know, you have to. I mean, the, the industry changed a lot, and, uh, and you have to know a lot of things, you know. You have to know a lot of things. And, and many other things, too. As a, as a musician, you have to learn uh, marketing. You have to learn how to sell your stuff. You have to learn how to talk in front of the camera. You have to learn how to edit a video, like basic stuff, basic stuff, you know. You have to be self-sufficient in a way, mainly if you're starting, because who is going to do this for you, you know? Like, you're going to be waiting? You're going to be waiting to be the chosen one, like in the past? <laughs> nobody's going to choose, nobody, nobody's going to choose you. That's the reality. Nobody, no one is going to choose you. You have to be, you know, even if you're a fucking genius, like Jacob Collier, let's say, he was doing his own video and editing his own things, like with the multiple faces of him singing the stuff. So that's the way to go. Even if you're like the best guitar player of the universe, you have to do your own videos. You have to, because nobody's going to find you in the middle of the, this noise and decide that you're the one. No, this, you have to grind and then work with your own videos and knowing how to write a headline in a YouTube and know how to upload the, the videos and how to whatever, you know, whatever it takes. And then to sell your stuff, to write the headlines or to, the, how to comment, how to understand the, the social media or the, the whatever, or Spotify or all those things. It's part of the, it's part of the game now. It's the job description, I think. Yeah, you have to know all this. Yeah, it's too bad. You have to know how to operate the, the, the Zoom you know, meetings to, to <laughs> do podcasts. Yeah, you know, you know, I have to know, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just out of. Otherwise, you decide, okay, I'm, I don't know this. I don't want to learn. Or you find somebody that can do that. Maybe you have a wife or a girlfriend or a friend that's a partner that can help you. But it's, it really comes, it's, you have to find this person. You know, nobody's going to uh, find you. No one's going to find you. So you might find somebody that can help you that's more like tech-oriented uh, guy. And then you build something. 
I believe back in the days we would uh, find another guy to have a band, you know, find a drummer, find a bass player, a singer. Oh, that's that's cool. Let's make it, you know, have a band. I think now it's better to find a, like a a tech guy, <laughs> <laughs> video editor. <laughs> yeah, let yeah exactly. Let's um, let's do something. I think like a. Uh, Joe Bonamassa did something like that, having like a producer and a manager and him for his career. And then, boom, the career just, you know, uh, flipped from the one day to another. You know, suddenly he, he became uh, Joe Bonamassa, you know. It's not about finding the, the new drummer. It's about finding the, 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 the CTO, you know. I think that, like you said, even if you don't want to be the one doing the tech work, you still have to... You have to go into that side of things or you're going to get left behind. Yeah, because our, uh, we are all cyborgs, right? So we are all dependent. Oh, basically, my album, Open Source, so the name of the songs and the, the, the whole concept, is, it is instrumental music, but the whole concept it w was based, and the, the music video I did, I invite people to go to my YouTube channel and see the song EDM, E-Dependent Mind. It's about that. So we are like cyborgs. And the internet has i say cyborgs because we need a phone to complete our our being to be it's part of our brain so like our brain you know the phone is you know you're like a plugged in you know your thumb movement of everything right like of knowing everything you're like a, a thumb or even like a, a siri voice to know everything ask me something and i just ask siri and then she and i give you the answer Right, so we are cyborgs because of the internet. So how we deal with that? So the internet has two sides: it has the the beauty side of the democratization of knowledge, right? So we know everything, we can learn everything. You know, you can have the courses or even the video or online. You might pay for that, or but it's there, it's there for you, or for free. And then, so a guy in Sri Lanka or Indonesia or in the poor areas from Brazil can learn violin from the best player from Germany. You know, you didn't have that. You know, you can you can uh, have the the, the all the, your tutorials in mixing and stuff with the best guys. Come on, it's like, awesome. Like right, so you didn't have that. So this is awesome knowledge. And then uh, the, the you know bringing people together, also uh, collaboration. You know, you can have a guy playing with a guy from another side of the world and doing some awesome music together, right? That's why my album calls Open Source, because I didn't. I'm I'm releasing the songs now, and then I, I soon I'm gonna release the stems, and then expecting people to create songs from my songs, because I don't believe my songs are the final product. My songs, I believe, should be the the starting point of other songs. You know. So once you have the stamp, I have some. I sent to some friends. They did already cool stuff, so like remixes or uh, or electronic music out of my song. Just get the riffs or the solos and create something else. Something if you want to dance or if you want to write a poem based on the song, whatever. So every piece of art should inspire to have new arts coming, and then the open source concept in music would be that. But then the bad side of the internet is the dependency. Of the internet is the the fast pace the addiction the addiction the you that paralyze you you see like so many great people doing stuff that is like why are you gonna start doing this because I've never get that that good you know so 
I paralyze a lot of people, it, depression and anxiety, a lot of anxiety, people comparing, uh, being compared to each other. So my whole album, I, I was kind of thinking about this, and that's why I have songs like Liquid Times, which is like uh, is a name of a book of the Zygmunt Bautman, who's a um, philosopher, and uh, about the, how fast things are. You know, you don't commit to anything, and when you record an album, in times of Instagram players that they put like 30 seconds of music, and they have their whole career based on multiple. 30 seconds or 15 seconds or a minute of music compared to uh, my album that is 56 minutes of music. It's a good amount of time. This is like, this is outrageous to ask somebody nowadays to, can you, do you have 56 minutes to spend to get to know me? <laughs> this sounds so old. This is like such a, like a fucking 90s, like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It, it, it's old, but it's hard. It's what I am now, and it's going to stay forever, because that's going to be my album. In my careers, I don't have many albums. I might have lots of Instagram posts, but albums, I have few albums. And there's a lot of commitment and money and time and effort and uh, anxiety as well and, and doubts and stuff to create an album. And then, oh, yeah. and then I cannot erase. And I can't, the main thing, I cannot erase. Because if I post something on Instagram and people don't like it, I can erase right the day after and that's it right like but an album you cannot erase and a bad album is there forever and you have to live with that and you might have to tour those playing those songs or 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 people and people saying well i love kiko but i don't like that album or you know whatever so you have to live that the rest of your life you see the bands are like this right you you might like a band but you don't like some albums and they have to deal with that Nowadays, everything is liquid. You're just like, oh, this video is not so good. Let me erase that. Or even if the video is not so good, generally people will forget about it within a few days. Of course, because that's, that's the next, next thing, you know. And then, uh, yeah, so uh, I mean, like doing an album, is how can you make an album that you can expand the lifetime of that album, that people can interact more with the album, that they would do with what they do in their phones, you know, how you bring music nowadays, like an hour of music, and make people take part of that? Well, I think you're saying something interesting, because my my thoughts now on at least listeners in our genres, I don't necessarily think it's the same in more consumer genres, but heavier music is generally listened to by people who create it especially guitar music, you know, like the main listeners for guitar music are guitar players. I think that nowadays people are more interested in creating than consuming. And so if you give them a way to create something with what you're giving them, that's more likely to get their attention, I think. In my case, you mean, or in, in any case? In the case of, yeah, yours specifically, because your audience are guitar players and guitar players in 2020 all have all these tools now to yeah. make videos and make songs. And that's part of the landscape now. And so I feel like they're always going to, they're going to lean towards something that allows them to do that rather than just passively listen, I think. 
I think yeah, there's many ways to promote your music and uh, to share what you were doing. And, and not only musicians, everybody can be creative, you know. And because you have the tools, you know, you can get your picture and then change the filters and put something and then, you know, create a logo for yourself using any app. And then everybody, everybody's like that, you know, that's part of our lives. And then I think it's awesome that everybody can be creative. So why not? And then you can pay to learn a little bit, you know, be, you know, watch videos and and learn a little bit of how to be more creative in any field, if it's like drawing or playing and uh, or just my my dream would be you know of course having the uh, uh, an app that you could do something with the music for a non musician you know which is uh, uh, a friend of mine in Helsinki he has a, he takes some uh, uh, some moogs and some uh, things to schools and then let people or companies and let people play those equipment and the uh, sequencers and stuff and then. Normal people can have fun playing music, you know, even without knowing what they're doing. Because nowadays, like all those keyboards and stuff, you press here and there some stuff and start making sounds and you can be creative. So the more creative you can, we can be as human beings, the better. I think it lies a lot of happiness there. So that's the idea. I think it's a good idea. Like, I think that maybe 20 years ago, creativity wasn't as much a part of the landscape for the majority of people unless they were like super creatives but you're right with all this technology here creating things even little things is just part of most people's lives which is cool yeah well i think everybody the human being is very creative so if you have children you you'll see that's a basic part of our childhood is creating stuff building houses with uh, you know pillows or painting mm -hmm. or uh, drum set with a you know what with, with the pillows or in the sofa or something so you're going to be uh, creating uh, at some point at in in the school because you have to perform they cut the creativity because you have to learn math or something and then there was always the i think there was a problem you know in the school system but the children uh, they're very creative. So as human beings, we are very creative. And then uh, the board, uh, you know, if you don't have anything to do, you're gonna be. Cre you have to be creative to find what to do and and how to play to have fun because that's what you want. At some point, when you go to school, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And then for for years at school, you're not allowed to be creative. But at some point, people ask. And then you get a job, and then people, yeah, we have to find. You have to find a solution to this problem, and finding solutions to problems is to be creative. And then yep. suddenly you don't, you're not creative because you don't know how to be creative, and you know how to deal with uh, being bored, not doing anything because it's from this moment of not doing anything that you might have an idea or have a solution for something, and uh, and I think nowadays people. They need this because life is so complicated and so connected with the phone and, and, and there's a lot of anxiety around us. And well, not talking about the pandemic, that this is like make everything even worse. Just in general, anyways, before that. And then you have, you have the tools to be creative and you even can share. That's the big difference because before you could paint, but you'd paint in your house and that's it. Or you could, you know, build a skateboard, 
and then that's it. So only for you. But now you can do something, and then you can share and can comments of people, and you know, and then uh, collaboration of other people, and that's amazing. It can be amazing or can be very frustrating because some people are trying to to be how to say uh, to be accepted by by the number of likes or and that's why all those fake stuff start coming because you want to be better than the other ones you don't want to be better than you yourself there's always going to be a dark side though i think with with anything people do any advancement is going to have a dark side too of course of course so yeah you have to be aware of that being aware is a good you know is a good step because then you can when you're there like fucking like on the phone or like you're comparing yourself to somebody else or you want to perform better because you just want to be, be you have to be better than yourself and uh, feel that you're evol- evolving and then you're true, true to yourself what you like what you want to do in life and uh, and then you for sure uh, if you keep doing this in the long term you're going to be happy and then going to be fulfilled you know as a, as a human being so that's what I believe you know I think that if more people felt like that, it would be a, a healthier world. So real quick, because I don't want to take up your entire day, we have a few questions oh, cool. from our listeners for you. And you already covered a lot of the stuff that they asked, but um, there's a few here we didn't cover. So Johan Vestman says, what's the biggest lesson you learned from Dave Mustaine regarding guitar playing or composition uh yeah the guitar playing i think was uh the riffs some you know i think was a lot yeah the riffs the how to how to get a better sound from you know better tone he's one of the best rhythm guitar players ever yeah so this was very helpful and uh songwriting as i said before I, i was practicing a lot so i have like this very methodic way of playing maybe you know compared to him that was he was just playing you know, uh, didn't have a, like a proper training, and then is then he does some cool stuff that doesn't follow the rules of you know like up and down, you know whatever picking patterns or something like that. Sometimes it's hard, or even like the tempo, you know, sometimes like ahead or behind, just to give this feeling the the, the Megadeth sound. So there's a lot. Of, it's very little things, nuances, but uh, it was a good good learning. Composition wise, of course, uh, songs. Uh, based on riffs you know i was right i always wrote songs um starting from the chord progressions of melodies you know i like this melody i like this chord progression and then i start building the songs around that and then of course all those uh thrash metal bands is all based on riffs give me a good riff and then another riff and another riff and build songs from the riffs without having melodies, without having the lyrics, without, you know, just the riffs. And then they, they can imagine the song's going to be great just because the, the riff is catchy and it's good. And then uh, it's also very specific, but it was good to see how he works, how he, the process of collecting and creating the riffs and connecting the riffs. And uh, it was a good learning. So, of course, uh, I will try more like this you know next time I, you know i think my new album has a little bit of that but i still have my own way of writing but i think you can hear some like more sometimes some simpler riffs that has an idea and you know you don't need to to have several lots of ideas in one riff but this is very 
80s because the new, the new bands they put all together in one riff. If you listen to Periphery or you know any uh, modern bands, it's gonna have a lot of information in in 16 bars. You know, lots of information. You know, it's like it's more like an Instagram kind of. You know, like just. Seeing <laughs> a lot of pictures, you know, in 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 one minute you see like tanning, you know, you see like a great guitar player, the guy trying to sell some stuff, and then you see another guy doing a gym exercise, and then the the guy is like a financial coach saying something, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, like a vegan guy saying something. So, uh, uh, and then I think I think the modern bands they they have that, like it's like one riff has a lot of information. And then if you look to the bands in the 70s, they would have like a, a long solo, a two, three minutes long solo, a long intro. And, um, and, uh, and then if, if you listen to the, to the riffs from the rock and roll uh, bands, even that's a, I think George Benson uh, instructional video, he talked about this, you know. So it was like a one bar riff or could be like so like one like a riff was there and then somebody would sing on top of that and then it was it started to be more complex and then you change something and there's like 50s and 60s and it gets more complicated and it was like satisfaction from Rolling Stones it's the same riff right and then and then it gets more complicated, more complicated to the to the time to nowadays. They're like fucking, what the guy's playing? He's playing the entire music history in one riff, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's like they have like triplets and sixteen notes and and uh, and uh, like chromatic scales and uh, diatonic and uh, exophonic and then it's, some, it's like everything is one and it's cool. But it's like it's like going to your feed, you know, on Facebook or Instagram. There are all this information in, in a minute. <laughs> so I think like Megadeth has more this. Okay, let's watch a good movie. You know, it's like it's gonna stay two hours like watching the same thing, and then even though it's like nowadays people don't watch movies, they watch series, which like a series of uh, forty-five minutes, you know, like uh, thirty minutes, because that's the maximum time you can spend in one thing, you know. And uh, I think the riffs are the same. So how can you put one idea, only that idea, in a riff? So, yeah, sorry about the long answer. <laughs> That's a good answer. The core of the songs, I think, is they're still like the stuff that I used to do in the past. The melodies and, and that I did with Angra. Yes, I think is a is a mix, but the fact that I'm using eight strings and then modern sound, even the way that I record it as well, I think it changes a little bit. You know, uh, uh, kind of sometimes like writing the riff there at the studio and changing some parts of the riff just because we can, and making it a little bit more complicated because you can go to the Pro Tools and say, oh, the bass drum's doing this. What about if I do a, like a complicated thing here that follows the bass drum, whatever. And then you can see things, and then you start writing some parts on that. But I think the music that I have inside me, it, and then all my references are like are like so old. I mean, it's from from my childhood or teenager times. And the and if I get every song and I, and I refer to you the, where the idea came from, I'm probably gonna mention things from the '90s, from the '80s, from Brazilian music. That's where my brain goes. But if I play that on an eight string, sounds modern. Makes sense. 
All right, last question. This is from Daniel Benavides. Two things. First, what is your approach to composing with a seven and eight string, and do you have any plans to rejoin or record with Angra again? Well, the Angra, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what they, their plans now, but uh, not, not for now. You know, uh, we're doing the Megadeth uh, new album now. About the other question about seven, seven, how to. What's your approach to composing with a seven or eight string? Well, it's kind of the same, a little bit the same thing. Actually, if you, if you learn how to play the riffs that I'm playing on the eight strings, actually I'm just playing a normal riff that you could play in a six strings, but I'm using the eight strings. So it's not, I'm not doing something completely, you know, oh, this is, this is an eight string. You know what I mean? It's like I'm just playing the... the, the you know, playing using, guitar. I'm just playing the riff, like, but using lower, lower strings. You know, uh, for me, the seven strings. Uh, I never really play seven strings because when I, I remember uh, Steve Vai and Korn, you know, the first guys that have uh, started using seven strings, and I always thought that was kind of boring because in in the Brazilian traditional music you have the seven string guitar, right? And then it comes from the 30s, you know. So it's a was a, so the seven string guitar in in Brazil, it comes from specific kind of music that the guitar makes the bass lines, right? So it's a very traditional thing. And I was like, what well, those guys are playing seven strings like the new thing? You know, I was always like, come on, this is like we have this like for like seventy years already, or maybe more. Oh, well, I had no idea. But the, the, the Brazilian, the, the kind of music called Choro, S-H-O-R-O, and this is like a mandolin, an acoustic guitar, another one that kind of has four strings, but it's not a ukulele, it's like a high pitch, uh, small, a little, kind of like a mandolin, but four strings, and then the seven strings guitar. And then seven strings guitar keeps doing counterpoints and inverting the harmony. So always like, it's very interesting. I, you know, the guys that love seven strings, I would uh, invite you guys to listen. Of course, it's like listening to bebop music. It's like old style, like old recordings. But you still have Yamandu Costa is like one of the, the best young players in Brazil acoustic guitar. He only plays seven strings. And then uh, there's all a specific way of playing that. So for me, it was always like seven strings is the acoustic thing. It's not you know, trying to play a, instead of playing a riff in E, you're going to play now in B, you know, so, and also, actually, Sepultura did the album Roots, um, also, it's all in B, but it was six strings tuned down to B, right, so that's early 90s, so that, that was cool, because it's it more about the tone, right, than uh, specifically the, something you can do with seven strings, also, there's a, a one of the, greatest musicians from Brazil, musicians from Brazil, Egberto Gismonti. So I grew up listening to him. Uh, he always played the 10 strings acoustic guitar, you know. So for me, it was never a new thing, this seven strings or eight strings, because the Brazilian culture always had these uh, instruments there, but always acoustic guitar. So it took me a while to, okay, let me try this thing here. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, basically, because I'm, you know, I have my guitars and Ibanez, so I could ask some guitar for free there. So okay, give me a seven strings and eight strings. I start, start, you know, uh, getting, 
you know, having fun this uh, in these instruments, you know. I think you have some, so much to learn still in the six strings, so I always thought that's like, why I would put an extra string, <laughs> strings if I still don't know yet how to play using six strings. <laughs> that's a great answer. Oh, thank you, man. Well, Kiko, I want to thank you for spending the time with us today. It's been awesome talking to you. Oh, no problem. My pleasure.